0: Hey everybody! That sound in the bath is not me going to the bathroom. That's just pouring coffee, folks. Don't get crazy. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by a new sponsor. It's called Blue Apron, and Blue Apron. Uh, I just um, just tried this out this week. Um, they sent it to me. This is what Blue Apron is. It's a way to get all the ingredients for healthy meals, along with recipes, shipped to your house. It's pretty interesting. Um, I was a bit skeptical at first. I was like, what, what exactly are they going to do? And then they send you this thing. It's got this sheet. It's got photographs of what everything looks like, shows you how to cook everything. All the meals are between 500 and 700 calories per serving. Really interesting and way too low, uh, the calories are low for how delicious they are. It's all healthy, excellent food and it's all stuff that you don't have to go to a store. You don't have to go anywhere. They'll ship everything to you. It's all like in these um, coolers that have like I guess it's like freeze dried or something like uh, not freeze dried. What's that it's stuff dry called? Ice. Dry ice. Dry ice to keep it cold. But it uh, it sat inside my house for like ten hours and it was still nice and cold uh, when I opened it up and put it in the refrigerator. Um, they have all kinds of yummy stuff. They have the step-by-step instructions which I said, which picture with pictures, totally idiot-proof. They work around your schedule and your dietary preferences and the cooking takes, you know, like about a half an hour. Shipping is completely free and you can make meals like short rib burgers on pretzel buns, kung pao chicken tacos, Very delicious stuff. You cook incredible meals, and you can be blown away by the quality and the freshness. Blue Apron. It's fast, it's fresh, and it's affordable. To end the stress of cooking now, go to blueapron.com slash Rogan and get your first two meals free. That's right. First two meals free. Blueapron.com slash Rogan. It's a really interesting idea. I've never heard anything like this before. And uh, like I said, I was kind of like a, a bit skeptical, but the meals were delicious. Um, last night I, I had, um, I had some, I forgot the name of the the tacos, but it was a a steak taco, but they, all the spices, they give you like onions, garlic, all these different things to chop up. It was really kind of cool. Uh, so blueapron.com slash Rogan and get your first two meals free. I'm using it right now. And as I use it, I will update you guys, uh, on all the, the new ingredients and new different things that I try out. So uh, I'll keep you updated. But so far, so good. I love it. Blueapron.com slash Rogan. Go there and get your first two meals free. We're also brought to you by Ting. And if you go to Rogan.Ting.com, you can get in on what is going to be the future of cell phone purchasing and cell phone use, in my opinion. Uh, What Ting does is they... They rent the Sprint backbone, so it's just like having a Sprint phone, except you have no contracts, you have no early termination fees, no add-ons, no BS, no weird hidden payments that you have to, to, to deal with. Most of the time when you buy a cell phone, if you buy a cell phone and the cell phone says it costs $200, it's not really $200. Most likely, it's probably quite a bit more. But what they do is they defer that money over the course of the term of your contract. So the, the phone might really cost 600 bucks. So for the next three years that you're under contract, you're slowly paying off that phone. You don't realize that. So when you go to try to con- cancel your contract, you owe them a bunch of money. And it's kind of annoying. It's also annoying the way they have it set up at most cell phone companies, except Ting, this is the only one I know of that does it differently. Ting has it set up where you only pay for what you use. Like say if you have like um, 120 minutes a month plan, most of the time you're not going to use all that. And what happens when you don't use it? Nothing. You don't get any money back. If you use more, you pay more. They get you with a fee. But if you use less, you do not get paid. You don't get that money back. With Ting, you only pay for what you use. It's an awesome company. I really love doing business with them because, first of all, they're completely and totally ethical. They're they're also very generous. When Ting had its 2-year anniversary, for no reason whatsoever other than the fact that they wanted to, they decided to cut rates on slash rates on their data, which really affected heavy users especially. 98% of people would save money with Ting, and that is because they do mobile differently. Go to rogan.ting.com for more details. They have all the new and greatest Android phones available, including uh, the iPhone 5. You can get the iPhone 5 for 260 bucks that's ridiculous folks it's cheap it's easy it's awesome and uh, they have been a sponsor of the podcast for a long time so if you were in the market for a new cell phone please give them a try uh, they support us and we support them rogan.ting.com go there and save 25 bucks off of a new cell phone then that's it for now let's, right. let's just uh, get cracking we got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about ladies and gentlemen we have a very special guest cue the music young Jamie and I'll introduce him to the world <laughs> Joe Rogan podcast, check it out The Joe Rogan Experience Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day We have, is it, is it okay to call you the gadfather? Please do <laughs> <laughs> The gadfather is here, ladies and gentlemen And this is in, in reference to a, 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 mi- a music video that you were a, a part of uh, Gad, how do I say your last name? Sad, sad. Just Sad yeah, That's fine Gad Sad yeah it's two a's it gets tricky when it's two a's because it's the guttural sound from arabic oh how would you say it sad sad but since most westerners couldn't pronounce that you just do a double a oh uh, that's that's got to be annoying <laughs> that's, that's weird like we gentrify everything there we you go. we smush everything down right. and uh you are um you're an expert in evolutionary psychology and in this is where Rick it's really fascinating Evolutionary psychology and its effect on consumerism. Right. So I basically apply uh, evolutionary psychology to
1: understand our consumatory nature. What are the biological forces that compel us to be the consumers that we are? But I define consumption very broadly. It's not just consuming Coca-Cola, but we consume friendships, we consume religion, we consume marriages. So it's a consumption with a capital C
0: that's fascinating to me because uh, you know we have these uh, general definitions that we use in 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 culture Uh, and one of them is consumerism consumerism almost always pertains to buying things but what you're looking at it in is is I I like that better like because it it is kind of what we do we do consume relationships don't we exactly I mean we consume cultural products right so
1: uh, you know, why is it that certain songs are so appealing to us? I mean, what what, are, what is it about song lyrics that are uh, that you know trigger an emotional pull in us? Or why are movies appealing? Well, you study these cultural products because they say something really about the evolution of the human
0: mind. Uh, That's, do you study songs that are annoying as well? Because <laughs> well, I've always wondered why some songs are like super appealing to some, but then just infuriating to other people. Yeah,
1: so that would probably be more a musicologist who would study the, the musical structure of songs to know what makes them appealing or not. I'm specifically looking at the lyrics. So, for example, if you look at hip-hop videos, uh, they're a wonderful Darwinian laboratory because all the political correctness is cut out. And basically, your real Darwinian being shines through, right? So men are going to uh, signal, hey, I've got the Maserati, I've got the Porsche, get with me. Uh, women are going to signal you know, beauty markers. It's only women, for example, who denigrate men if they have low social status, right? It's never going to be a guy saying, hey, Linda, you... You don't work hard enough, so uh, you're not ambitious enough.
0: I'm not going to have sex
1: with you. But the
0: other way around, you, f- you see a million <laughs> songs like that, right? Yeah, yeah. All, you know, like she, uh, she's not a gold digger, but she, you know, right, exactly. that kind of song. Yeah, right. yeah is that, that's very interesting. Um, a musicologist, is that a real person?
1: <laughs> that's a real person, yes. That's, and a
0: musicologist would study lyrics and no- uh, and Well, they would probably study the, the, structure, the structure of, of, of the, the musical notes, right?
1: So, what, it, for example, what is it that's... What types of notes are innately appealing to people? Uh, so that, that's certainly not what I do. I'm, I'm looking only at song lyrics as one of
0: many types of cultural products. The lyrics would be the thing that would be annoying to most, though. I mean, that would be the thing that would really chime out as being annoying. Like some like inane, retarded songs. Taylor, that, Taylor Swift. Well, you said it, not me. How <laughs> dare you? How dare you? That poor Sorry, little girl. Swift Has she not that? suffered enough? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, I know one thing. If you date Terrell Swift, you're a fucking idiot because that chick will write songs about you for the end of time. She's got whole books about John Mayer. Is that his name? Yeah. Mayer or Meyer? Yeah. I always say it yeah. wrong. Yeah. John Mayer. That chick's got books on that yes. guy. Yes, yes. That's, un, that's unfair. Imagine that. Um,. So your your thing would be more along along the lines of studying like why people are why they find it appealing like the rap type songs why they find it appealing like or, a Taylor or Swift or the song. contents of those songs. Yes. So for,
1: so for example if you take a an ancient Greek poem, right? We still study it at university today, three thousand years later, mm. precisely because that poem is going to speak to certain realities sibling rivalry, status competition, parental conflicts with their with their offspring, uh, uh, a paternal uncertainty all of these factors is what makes literature interesting, so we could study those. Ancient Greek poems today, and still it resonates with us precisely because they are speaking about some
0: universal truths. That is amazing, isn't it? That stuff from uh, 2,000, 3,000 plus years ago is still studied on a daily basis. Awesome. But some books from like 50 years ago eh, Ar- are gone, yeah. That's got to be frustrating as hell if you're a writer. If you're an <laughs> author and you're just like, what? That, you're, that guy is so overrated. I'm so tired of healing, hearing about, you know, Aristotle, like Aristotle, go fuck yourself, bro. That shit was so long (laughs) ago. You didn't know anything. Well, they knew a lot. They they, They did know a lot. They certainly knew
1: the, the mysteries of human nature.
0: I'm fascinated by that. I am absolutely fascinated by what was going on thousands and thousands of years ago and like what was the mindset and communication with those people. And you can kind of pull a little bit of it out of their writing. But man, if I could go back in time to... Some occult, I mean, it would have to be a culture, obviously, that speaks English, where it could understand what they're saying. But I, I think that would be incredibly fascinating to go back three or 4,000 years ago and communicate with people and just try to figure out how they see the world. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people are very stuck on identifying
1: cultural differences, right? So the French eat this type of food. The Malaysians do this type of dance. and But what they miss is that underneath all of these important cross-cultural differences is this bedrock of human universals that make us a lot more similar than different from one another. And especially in the social sciences, where people are really focused on just identifying differences, differences, differences. But of course, there are also things that are so common. So that, for example, beauty markers, there are certain beauty markers that if I went to the Yanomomo tribe in the Amazon they're going to find exactly the same things attractive in the in the beautiful girls in rap videos as you and I would and that's because those beauty markers are evolutionary markers and so yes culture matters nobody denies the fact that culture is important but underneath these cultural differences is a biological biological heritage that makes you and I very similar to one another.
0: What, what changes over time that makes beauty markers differently? Like, I've always been fascinated by, like, if you look at the Renaissance paintings, the women were yeah. very, you, would, you can't even call them voluptuous. They're, right. they're overweight. Rubenesque. Yeah. yeah, Rubenesque, like they eat a lot of Rubens. <laughs> what does Rubenesque mean? Well, it's R- Ruben was
1: a painter who was particularly, had a penchant for drawing these Voluptuous women. He was a fatty chaser. <laughs> he was. a bit of a fatty chaser, Ruben. This, this, I must say, this is the first time that I've held an interview where fatty chaser has come up. So thank you.
0: Well, you need to be involved in more podcasting <laughs> because fatty chasers—it's important. You know, people say now that you're fat shaming. That's the the newest thing, right? Do, do you follow these uh, ultra super sensitive terms and their evolution? Oh. It- you said we've got up to three hours. I, I, I could talk Please. about this for about thirty hours. Please, yeah, I actually
1: went recently to, and uh, we come back. We can come back to the, to the Ruben Estes. Okay, thing if we'll come back to that. I, I recently gave a talk at uh, Wellesley College, an uh, all pl- women's college. All women's college. A nice
0: data checker went there.
1: Is that right? Tough uh, times.
0: <laughs> rough, uh, Tough times. Was, was, back it, in the was day. it? Was it Taylor Swift? <laughs> no, no. It was a gal who did not shave her legs. <laughs> oh, because it was patriarchal to beautify mm-hmm. yourself. There you yeah. go. Yeah, she could pull it off because she was blonde. But whoa, her roommate. Was a hobbit essentially? <laughs> she had hairy feet, the whole thing. But hey, so, you know, whatever. It's just cultural norms. That's it. So, anyways, so I give a talk there under
1: this thing called the Freedom Project, which tries to promote sort of uh, iconoclastic ideas that kind of break the shackles of political correctness. And uh, it was just amazing the kind of stuff that uh, that was happening there. I mean, I'll just give you one or two examples. Um, Apparently, it was a form of uh, oppression to assume for a professor to assume that when he meets students, he right away categorizes them as, as either being male or female. So, for example, if I see you in my class and I say, Hey, sir, uh, you know, blah, 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 well, that would be a form of oppression because I'm assuming, based on your outer markers, that you are male. Rather, what I should do is sort of uh, do a quick uh, uh, polling of each person in terms of how they'd like to be addressed. So you may be biologically male, but you are uh, gender, uh, whatever uh, transgender. You could, you could be, be queer. Be, you could be queer. You could be this. So, yeah. As you know, Facebook has fifty markers. That fifty. Could, there's fifty. Five with, zero. Five zero. Uh, I could only not count two. Ab-
0: I could count about <laughs> ten. Right. Wow. 50. Uh, 50. And for folks who don't know, queer is not a slur. Um, when I'm saying queer, I'm like, yeah, hey, you're queer. I'm not saying it like that. Queer is they they do not want to be interpreted as male or right. female. They want to be just whatever they are. Right. And so
1: now you have at universities a discussion as to whether you should have not male and female uh, bathrooms, but you should have gender neutral bathrooms. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so, oh so, Lord. so in academia and the world that I reside in, it's 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 there.
0: Why is it getting so squirrely? What's going on? Are we too soft? Do we have to hunt for our own food? Do we have to like <laughs> deal with the winter more? Do we have to like you know chop wood to keep warm? What what is making us concentrate on these frivolous matters? Of like, it's not just a politically correct thing. It's like. It's coddling the most ridiculously oversensitive notions that human beings have ever constructed.
1: I think we've been parasitized by an astonishing form of political correctness. I mean, what is
0: uh, parasitized like, mean?
1: like a parasite that oh. enters you, right? So, in the same way that Ooh, I like that word. <laughs> that viruses can enter your 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 body, mm-hmm. uh, viruses of the mind can also take over your your. Th- I mean, religion is an example of a memeplex, a, a form of. I mean some people would be upset by what I'm saying but a form of parasite that kind of rewires your thinking. Yes. And so political correctness is a an, an astonishing form of, you know, parasitic thinking where everything is viewed through the lens of I should not offend anyone. And so common sense and just reason goes out the window in the pursuit of non-offense.
0: You know what though, I have an issue with it that most people who practice this in the extreme form, they say that they should not offend but you know who they offend they offend anyone who does not agree with their notion that you should not offend they will be violent and angry and fucking incredibly insulting to people who do not agree with their, their, their terms of what is offensive what's not offensive. I have been the, – the, some of the ma- meanest, nastiest things have been said to me by people who claim to be uh, in this sort of ultra-sensitive, super open-minded category, which is quite fascinating
1: to me. Uh, uh, that, you're exactly right. I'll give you a, a fantastic quote. I might be paraphrasing. It's like that. I think it's Thomas Sowell, a, um, an economist. Who basically was criticizing so-called diversity? So right, so at American universities or in Western universities, everybody talks about diversity, but the only form of diversity that's not allowed is intellectual and political diversity, right? So so we want diversity in terms of skin color, we want diversity in terms of sexual orientation, we want diversity in terms of genders, right? So all forms of diversity are welcome, but don't you dare step out of line with the accepted politically correct positions. Now that's diversity that we don't want.
0: Yeah. What is that? What, I mean, how do they not see that?
1: Stop police. Yeah. And I, I, face it in, I mean, eventually I guess we'll come back to my work. I face it very much in my work because I, I, I rile up all sorts of different people out of the wood, the woodwork. So for example, radical feminists hate my work. Because how dare you say that we are biological beings? How dare you say that there are innate sex differences? Uh, Postmodernists will hate my work because truth is all relative. There's no such thing as scientific truth. It's all relative. Uh, The religious folks will hate my work because if Darwinian theory is correct, it is, uh, then where is God in all this? So there's this long queue of people. Who will come out of the woodworks to criticize you, not for any valid scientific reasons, but because they it, it shakes their ideological beliefs.
0: It's, it's fascinating to me the parallels between religious nutters and politically correct nutters because it's very similar in a lot exactly. of ways. That their ide- ideology is just so cemented in exactly. in their consciousness. It's 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 immobile. It's rock solid. It's not going anywhere. If you disagree, you patriarchal piece of shit. You you know male fucking suppressor. You. <laughs> Horrible thing! It's it's quite fascinating. If 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 there aren't not if there are not differences eight differences in the sexes, what do they use these radical feminists? What do they use to define the reason why humans have such varying behavior between the male and female genders?
1: So you ready for this? Yes. Uh, everything short of genitalia is a social construction, right? So even for example, the fact that Bubba grew up to be a uh, block center for the university of oklahoma and hence he could bunch prince 500 pounds uh, that's not due to for example any physiological reasons that he is so strong it's because what happened is his parents uh, aggressively nurtured rough tumble play whereas for girls they told them listen linda you should not be playing so rough and that then either gives the green light or the red light to express your physicality
0: that's insane it, it is. That's absolutely insane. That that idea is insane. That there's not an, a, a difference in the physiological properties of the bodies of men and women. I mean, the biological differences are scientific.
1: Well, there are there, there are some feminists, and again, I'm paraphrasing their quote. They'll say there is no such thing as a male or female brain, as there's no such thing as a male or female pancreas or liver. Right. Oh, so so the organ that defines your personhood is actually gender neutral. Now, that is astonishing because we are a sexually reproducing species. So one of the foundational tenets on which biological understanding happens is that we have two types of uh, polymorphisms, if you like, two types. We have a male and a female so that we could sexually reproduce. So the idea that much of this is is social construction is, is just laughable. I think it comes, though, I mean, just to be fair to them, I think it originally comes from a desire to fight sex institutionalized sexism. But what happens is that they mix equality under the law as being indistinguishable beings, right? We, we could be different beings, yet we should be equal under the yes. law. But they argue that if you admit to the fact that we are different, then that makes it easier for the status quo sexist patriarchy to maintain its privileged position. And so they create this edifice of the past 50 to 100 years of social science research that is completely laughable, but that they hang on to like religious belief.
0: It's so fascinating. There was a woman that has a video online on YouTube where she claims that there is no difference in the physical strength of men and women, and it's just that men have been encouraged to engage exactly. in weightlifting and all these different things, and exactly. if women did the same thing, they'd be just as strong. That is <laughs> insane. It is. It's I mean, so insane. Men have 10 times more testosterone
1: than women. Is that a social construction? I mean.
0: Well, it's, it's also insane because women who are athletes women who are like elite world-class athletes if they compare their hand strength to men who don't even exercise men are stronger right just hand just the ability to grab things and grip things right. there was a an issue where there was a woman who was a uh, transgender she became a transgender woman and she used to be a man she was a man for 30 years and then she didn't tell anybody she started fighting women in women's mma and i was furious i, I went crazy about it and I got so much hate from people that were calling me transphobic.
1: you your transphobic, and, exactly. and I'm like,
0: that's amazing. Like, you don't understand. That there's a difference in the male frame. <laughs> there's a difference in the shape of the hips, the the di- the mechanics of the shoulder, like everything. The whole right. body's built different. Right. And not only that, the fact that it takes 30 years, like you're 30 years of being a man with full testosterone, right. and then it takes like 10 years before your bone density even starts right. decreasing. Right. But they wanted to make it so it's completely indistinguishable and. And they also have support from transgender surgeons which is quite fascinating and completely biased yeah. these transgender surgeons who want to or reassignment doctors and they want to pretend that they're exact equals physiologically
1: i got a great story on that uh, so in my first book i talk about john money who was a very famous uh, psychologist at johns hopkins uh, really around maybe the 50s to 70s, he was a big gender theorist who basically argued that everything is due to socialization so that when surgeons would go see him because they had to do gender reassignment, either, for example, let's say at, at a circumcision, you, in the rare case where you botch the circumcision and now you have a problem in terms of having a functioning penis or if you have for example a condition micro penis where you're unlikely to be a functioning male when you grow up well he would say don't worry about it just have the surgery put a dress on the kid and raise them as a girl and there would be absolutely no problem and of course the reality is that that's not how Biological sex is determined. And the most famous case is David Reimer, who was one of his patients, who, after having gone through the treatment, committed suicide. Yeah,
0: I remember that case. Yeah. That, was, uh, that was a fascinating story. The, um, the reality of, of what you said, the, one of the more fascinating aspects of it, is the, the difference between us all being equal as human beings and being the same. Because we are not, we're not equal. but exactly. We are very different. But we all should be equal as far as our rights. Right. You know, as far as like how we're treated by each other and the law and what a person can get away with, you know what what keeps our society civil and kind, yeah those that we should all have equality, including children and old people and everyone. everyone should have equality in that sure. in that aspect that's what what makes a civilized caring society but The idea that there's no differences as far as the other – I mean that we are equal as far as like physical strength or as equal as far as like our wants and desires and needs, that's – denying hundreds of years of literature of the struggle, the struggle in all cultures between the male trying to understand the female, the female trying to understand the male. We're completely alien to each other. We exist amongst each other and we gather information over a long period of time. But then we say ridiculous things like, here's one of the things that people love to say. Happy wife, happy life. Right. Why is that? Because make her happy and she'll stop screaming. You don't understand her. Just make her happy. <laughs> Do whatever she wants, and then she'll calm down, and you'll be good. But believe me, you can't just be yourself. You can't just be what you want to be and do what you want to do, because that's going to drive her fucking crazy, because you want to have sex with 100 women, you want to drive 50,000 miles an hour, you want to disappear for weeks at a time. You've been taught by the
1: patriarchy. You've been... been, uh, I've been brainwashed. (laughs) You've been brainwashed by the... By the way, speaking of sexual variety, which is kind of a central issue in evolutionary psychology, uh, you should see some of the hate mail I get when I state something as banal as you know men would have evolved a greater pension for sexual variety for terribly trivial reasons to explain right i mean women have a thing called greater parental investment right women on average have from from their men when the menses start to when they have menopause 400 eggs, right 400 eggs, so it's a scarce rare resource men in one ejaculation have 250 spermatozoa so our gametes are very cheap and abundant and then, of course, you add the cost of gestation, right? The, uh, the likelihood of having mortality when you're giving birth. So for all these reasons, women have much greater minimal parental obligations. Therefore, evolutionary theory would predict that they would be much more judicious when they're making a mate choice. Because if they make a poor mate choice, it looms much larger for them. That, on the other hand, for men, the costs of making a poor mate choice are not as great, but the benefits of having multiple mating opportunities are quite beneficial. And therefore, that's why, on average, you expect men to have a much greater penchant for sexual variety. Now, that's been documented in 17 trillion different ways, and yet you still have people that will send you hate mail saying, my God, are you a sexist pig? How could you promulgate <laughs> this garbage?
0: Well, you, I think when you're looking at human beings and you're talking about these these variables, you're looking at it as objectively and scientifically as possible. When people want that concrete world that we've discussed, this political correct concrete world politically correct they have this this resistance to looking at it in any way other than the way that they have exactly. it's completely non-scientific and that's why it's religious right absolutely and, and that's actually one of the criticisms
1: that you often get about evolutionary psychology people think that you are trying to justify behaviors for example if you explain why people are likely to cheat in their on their monogamous unions then they say oh well you're you're offering father to you know why people should do it mm-hmm. and of course my rebuttal is uh, I'm, I'm certainly doing no such thing similar to how an oncologist studies cancer. He's not justifying cancer. He's not for cancer. He's right. He, he just explains, he or she explains, cancer. And so I don't have a moral position, right? I I don't come to the table when I'm doing my scientific research hoping for one thing or another. The data speaks for itself. But again, the ideologues will say no. But if this forbidden knowledge gets out, it makes it easier for people to justified this behavior or that behavior
0: it's it's absolutely fascinating to me how human beings react and act and so this subject is is quite near and dear to my heart I, I love it I, I i just i'm i'm fascinated by the chaos of it all <laughs> i i love watching people flail and scream and get angry uh-huh. about whether it's religious anger like people who are like legitimately christian like i love the the god hates fags people the westboro baptist yes. people. i don't love them right yeah. I love everybody in one way. I would like everybody to be nice. But I love the fact that they exist because I'm absolutely fascinated by their folly. Yeah. I'm absolutely fascinated by this, this idea that they have in their head that's so concrete that they believe that soldiers are dying because men are being allowed to marry other men. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievably weird but uh, compelling to me. And in, in, in an equal way, the idea that you saying that there is some sort of a, an invested commitment that a woman has that a man does not have, objectively, just looking at us as a biological reproducing species, that you would experience hate because of that. As a scientist, yeah. as a person just analyzing data, I'm amazed and I'm fascinated and I'm just drawn into it. I can't help myself.
1: <laughs> you want to talk about some religious stuff? Sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, I... I was born in Lebanon. Uh, we're Lebanese Jews, uh, although I'm, I'm a non-believing Jewish guy. How dare you? I know, I know.
0: You believe uh, in some things. Tell <laughs> well, you
1: what. I believe in science and truth and ah. reason. Uh, and so we escaped Lebanon, actually, during the uh, civil war. Uh, my parents in 1980 were kidnapped by Fatah, the very peaceful of Fatah, because, you know, it's all peaceful. Uh, mm. And uh, and then after that, we, we've never gone back to Lebanon. And so I, from a very young age, uh, I think I already had sort of the innate penchant to question religious belief, which certainly created friction within my family because you should just believe and shut up. Right. Uh, but then when I saw the the, the hatred that, that religion engenders firsthand, right, I mean, facing execution as we're trying to escape Lebanon, and then coming to the West, uh, I think I became that much more forceful in my convictions to 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 try to combat religious dogma. And of course, some of the biggest hate mail that you get is when you do that. And I've even had real professional uh, situations where I've, I've lost professionally because of my position. Actually here in California, I've had several schools who otherwise were very, very interested in making me very, very lucrative offers who after maybe doing a bit of due diligence on me and seeing that I'd written stuff that was critical of religion, suddenly I became persona non grata. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: Really? That's fascinating. I wouldn't think that that would be the case as oh, far yeah. as...
1: There, there are even schools in Southern California that won't, and they do this legally because they are a religiously founded institution. Uh, if you're not a Seventh-day seventh Adventist, we can't grant you tenure. If there's another school that had a God Squad, whereby you go up in front of the God Squad. I mean, that's literally their term, where uh, you have to sort of show that you're uh, uh, accepting Jesus in your heart. And I, I remember that's when a I school. That's a school. A college. A very very university. prominent school. Please
0: then say the Please, name. Though, uh, Come I, on. I
1: better not. Can you rhyme uh, it? Say what it rhymes with. <laughs> Layola Marymount? Know. No, it's not. It's okay. but it's within that general area. Uh, there's another school three years ago who was going to make me a huge, huge offer in Orange County that didn't work out. Now to to the person who wanted me to appear in front of the God Squad, this was several years ago when I was at UC Irvine, I told them, You do realize that I am a atheist Lebanese Jew evolutionist. So it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be a while before I accept Jesus in my heart. And it, his answer was, well, no, no, but don't worry. We'll, we'll coach you as to, as to what to say. Oh, good which Lord. Answered, so that's a euphemism for lying, right? How does that fit with the whole re- So, you know, this yeah, is right? right here in 21st century Southern California and academia. You know, you wow. better hold certain religious beliefs. Otherwise, we'll punish
0: you, Jew boy. That's amazing. And that's some colleges and then – or some universities and then other universities, the complete opposite. If you're not uh, an atheist, I'm sure that you take a lot of slack. True, true. Well, it, it, at, at, at other universities or in
1: academia in general, it is quite uh, progressive to criticize certainly Christianity, right? Because mm-hmm. you're seen as a progressive guy who doesn't buy into all this branch age superstitions. But there is one religion that you Islam.
0: Islamophobia. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? I love that. This is the same ultra progressives. That you know would give you a million different ways to address someone based on whatever gender they okay. identify with, or you know, whatever the fuck else, yeah. weird, ultra, super sensitive thing. I, I find that completely fascinating. This Islamophobia thing—you find I, there's several websites that I r- frequent just to freak myself out, and uh, the the super sensitive ones on a regular basis will go over this Islamophobia. Well, because it's 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 a it's it's
1: actually a very astute way to to have intellectual warfare. You're actually saying that people who are concerned about particular aspects of this ideology are crazy, right? They suffer from a phobia. Mm -hmm. So you are denigrating them at their core. You must be nuts to actually Mm. fear this, right? And actually the term started as... You may or may not know it started with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, a very smart strategy, where they knew that the West is very open to being tolerant and so on. And so they kind of piggybacked on that. And so in academia, you just never criticize that one. Now, that's very dangerous because in a a sane world, all beliefs should be open to criticism.
0: Absolutely. And not only that, how about the one that is responsible for most of the suicide bombings? Oh, that's so Islamophobic. (laughs) I am Islamophobic. Said it. I'm Islamophobic. <laughs> I'm Jewophobic. I'm Catholicophobic. <laughs> I'm Christianophobic. I'm afraid of all of them. You're, you're reason-philic. You love yes, reason. There yeah, you. I do. Well, I, I was raised a Catholic for a very <laughs> short amount of time. And uh, I got very I had a very tumultuous childhood. And when I was um, in first grade, my parents put me in Catholic school. And up until then, I was – obviously, I don't remember much of this, because I was, but I was very religious. And it was because my parents were divorcing and uh, there was a lot of violence in the household. And I, I had this idea in my head that, like, somehow or another, God was the right way and everybody else was wrong. Going to Catholic school cured me of that entirely. The, the nun that I had, Sister Mary Josephine, I don't remember much about being six years old, but I remember that bitch. <laughs> uh, she she was very important to me. She she really straightened me out because I realized that she has no connection whatsoever to anything holy or majestic. She represented and she she showed all of the horrors of humanity, mm-hmm. meanness, evilness, uh, b- b- being nasty to children, fear mongering, and this this, this guilt. idea guilt everything all the above. It was just it was nothing. Nothing holy about it. It was pretty obvious pretty quickly that it was all bullshit. So it was cured from one year of Catholic school. I told my parents I was going to run away from home if they tried to put me in second grade. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I was like, I'm done. Like, you don't understand what it's like. Like I went from, you know, being around my mother, who's this great person, sweet, my grandparents are great, to all of a sudden, you know, I didn't go to kindergarten. I just went to first grade. It was my first year in school, to being around these monsters, and this monster school that was just filled with darkness. It was like the whole school was just dark. That All the priests, they I remember their faces. They all had these gin blossoms all over their faces from drinking. You know, and the... the nuns were all overweight and bitter and angry, and their fucking skin was having a bad relationship with their face. It was, like, hanging off of them. Everything about them was just monstrous, the evilness.
1: I'm I'm, I'm keeping a counter of the amount of hate mail that's going to come to both of let us. Let it
0: come, bitches. <laughs> let it come. I'll send it right back to you. I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, I, I'm fascinated by it, but... I understand that people need the, the they have this desire to believe in things. I I understand that. But I don't understand how you can be a rational, intelligent, objective person who looks at some shit that people wrote thousands of years ago and say, "No, this is this is uh, Immobile. This is exact. It's you cannot alter it. This is what it is. And this is this is written in stone. This is there's no way around this. This is God's word. Anybody questions it is a fool. So I do. In 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 my,
1: uh, one of my latest books, I have a chapter which I think got me in trouble with one of the Southern California schools that I was getting an offer from uh, because I'd given them a signed copy of the book, and then they probably got to that chapter. It's called mar- that chapter is called "Marketing Hope by Selling Lies." And so what I do in that chapter is I go through different hope peddlers, of which religion is the greatest, but others would be medical quackery, self-help gurus, and so mm-hmm. on. So, so different agents that peddle hope. And I argue, again, from an evolutionary perspective, because they're very successful because they cater to these very basal Darwinian insecurities, none greater than the very obvious one of existential angst, right? We're the only animal that we're aware of that actually is aware that we are on a death sentence, right? I mean, I know that I've got another... Luckily, maybe 40 years, right? Well, if I have high cholesterol, I go to my physician. He gives me Lipitor. Boom, LDL goes down. Everybody's happy. But how? what pill do I take to solve this really looming problem that's at the end of the road called my death? Well, different religions will give you different dances, but they all certainly promise you some form of eternity. It could be in the form of reincarnation. It could be I'll be with Jesus. It could be, you know, with the virgins. But there are all sorts of ways by which I could secure my eternity. And I think for most people, it's very difficult to not drink that Kool-Aid. I think it takes almost a pathological and dysfunctional honesty to say, I'm not going to buy that. Mm. I realize that I've got 80 years and I'm going to really do the best that I can during those 80 years.
0: I think it's a lot more comforting to say, no, this party's going to go on forever. It's certainly more comforting. It's also, there's something about human beings where we realize somewhere along the line That it's there's no one alive that has any more answers about what lies beyond the great beyond. You know, after death, what what lies beyond the yawning grave? No one has any answers. Can I give you what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing. You would hope so, or you would think (laughs) that you have that answer. But have you ever done psychedelic drugs? I haven't. There you go. So don't don't answer so quickly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I tell you, there are two ways of. Of seeking to reach immortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of course, is uh, it might seem a bit crass, but through just the genetic propagation. Your, mm-hmm. your children are, in a sense, your form of, of immortality. But I don't buy that. You even. don't like that one?
0: It's not immortal because the Earth doesn't last. The, I mean, unless someone figures out how to get off the planet, we only have, a, what, a 1.9 billion years Before of sunlight? The sun, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, we don't have enough time for anything, <laughs> there's no way. There's right. no immortality unless there's some sort of a fractal nature to the universe where it's like life and death is this completely ongoing cycle where the deeper you go, it starts again. And it, Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't yeah, know about that yeah. either. But the, it is possible. Yeah, it's Just, possible. The universe itself is so bizarre and unexpected. Sure. And the more you look into the universe, like I remember when I was a kid, I used to think space. I used to think of space like a neighborhood. I really did. I, I, I remember very succinctly that uh, I would like look at like Buck Rogers and all these different spaces. I'm like, oh, they're going to go over to this town and they're going to come back and this is our neighborhood. And they're going to go to that neighborhood and come back. And then as I got older and I started studying astronomy and I started studying the... And as I got older also the the knowledge that they had about the amount of stars changed. And they started talking about how there's more stars in our galaxy than there are grains of sand yeah. on all the beaches in you know, all the beaches on earth. And and then I remember just thinking like, well, this is a motherfucker of a neighborhood. Like this, (laughs) this is starting to get really strange. And then, as you get older still, you realize that they, there's no way they know how big it all is. Right. They have a general sense of 14 plus billion light years. But then there's the the fractal nature of black holes, the possibility that inside every galaxy is a black hole that contains an entirely new universe. And this is something that's being thrown about by yeah. not by freaks, but by like real serious, sure. legitimate scientists. So. That alone is so bizarre. The idea that you live and die seems like very trivial. That you come back again or reincarnation. I mean, why not? If a a supernova can exist, you know, why is it so crazy that a person lives for eternity and just continues to reincarnate? Well, and in light of all that
1: vastness that you said, isn't it incredible that all the monotheistic Abrahamic religions would argue that on some small speck of sand in some bronze age point, God spoke to some prophet and told him, You really better not eat pig. Yeah. So, you know, so in this great universe, you know, this cosmos, Mm -hmm. it's really important that you don't wear leather leather shoes at Yom Kippur or whatever Mm -hmm. the rule is. It's just astonishing to me that people actually buy this stuff
0: well i think that the reason for the pig stuff and there's this there's, there's I've, I've talked about this recently with my friend ari who uh, was raised uh very religious in judaism and then as he got older just decided to abandon it all now he's a dirty comedian hilarious but um we were talking about that the pork thing was probably due to diseases. I talk about that in my book. Trichinosis. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't do the
1: analysis for uh, pork. I do it for shellfish.
0: Mm. And
1: so if you look at shellfish. Red
0: tide and things along those right. lines. So yeah. you,
1: you can't tell which one is infected. You can't look at the water and, mm-hmm. and, and predict which one would likely have the, 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 the bacterium. And so all you know is that once in a while somebody would eat it and drop dead. Since you don't have any ability during the Bronze Age to refrigerate and so on, well, you don't have any access to the germ theory, certainly they didn't know anything about that, well, then it must be some malediction. And mm. so you're exactly right that there are very, very clear, obvious biological explanations for most of these food taboos.
0: Yeah, it's just ridiculous that in 2014, people don't realize the origins of these. Like, right. yes, it was a great idea 2,000 years ago before we understood thermometers that you you have to cook your meat to 150 yeah. degrees. Or that it kills the bacteria. And then it's ter- per- perfectly, totally healthy. Right. But if you try to eat pork the same way you will try to eat venison you're going to get really sick and that's why religions like hey look if we want to keep our people alive we got to tell them not to eat this particular animal this is an animal that eats a lot of stupid shit (laughs) exactly yeah it's so religion has been the biggest uh, blowback of your work or has Uh, it been
1: uh, actually probably the ones that are that were the, the the most acerbic in their criticisms have been other social scientists uh, even really? more, yeah, because the social sciences have very much developed over the past hundred years with a
0: complete rejection of biology. How is that a science then? If they call it social sciences, <laughs> if you reject biology, yeah, yeah, which is, is measurable, and social science is sort of well,
1: what they argue is that. What makes us human is that we transcend our biology. So don't use the evolutionary mechanisms that explain the behavior of the zebra and the dog and the mosquito to explain our behaviors. What makes us use human is precisely that we're able to transcend these biological imperatives. And so Uh, The field of anthropology, not bioanthropology, which is a subset of anthropology that recognizes biology. But, for example, cultural anthropology is all about going to all of these exotic cultures and demonstrating how each culture is unique and different. And hence, there are no such thing as human universals. Uh, Social psychology is pretty much operated without any understanding of biology. So what I did in my work is I came along and I founded this field which I coined evolutionary consumption where I apply evolutionary theory and biology to study consumer behavior. But more generally, my my real goal is to what I call, maybe it's a grand goal, to Darwinize the business school. The idea is that you you can't study anything. You can't study investment investment psychology or personnel psychology or organizational behavior or consumer behavior without recognizing that all of these players are biological beings, right? The decision that you make if your blood sugar is low and you're hungry is very different than the decision you make if you're satiated, right? I mean, that's a trivial example, but a very obvious one. So the idea that economists have spent, you know, 100 years developing all these fanciful mathematical models without ever recognizing that They are these biological forces that compel us to be the decision makers that we are. is astounding to me. So the greatest blowback has been from social scientists who typically have been very reticent to accept what this biology boy is saying about consumer behavior and so on. Fascinating. Now, the good news – can I go on? Yes, please. Uh, I always use a quote by – there's a guy called uh, J.B.S. Haldane who was a very famous evolutionary geneticist who who was very – quotable very had all these great quips so he said that there are four stages that uh, scientists go through before they accept a theory and i'll slightly paraphrasing so stage 1 this is bullshit this is garbage stage 2 well this might be true but it's rather perverse stage 3 well this this is true but largely unimportant and stage four, oh, I always said so. <laughs> now, the reason why that quote captures i mean, if I ever did an autobiography of my scientific career, I, that quote is basically my book because i've seen people go through these four stages in their responses to my work. At first, I couldn't get an invitation to go to to get twenty minutes at a at a conference to speak because what what does biology have to do with anything, and now, of course. Science is an autocorrective process. The evidence is coming in my way, and I don't mean to to gloat about it. Gloat away. Gloat away. (laughs) But now they're all coming fast and furious. Man, you're the man. And I said, but wait a minute. I remember 10 years ago. I've still kept your email where you said I was a bullshitter.
0: Ah, No, no, that wasn't
1: me. That must have been my research assistant who hacked my email and wrote that to you.
0: (laughs) Haldane is a great guy to quote. He had a, a fantastic quote that I love. Not only is the universe queerer than we suppose, it's queerer than we can suppose. It's exact. You know what? You're
1: my you're my new coolest guy to to actually know who Haldane is. So you're the man. <laughs>
0: well, that's a special quote. Yeah. That's just an amazing. There's quote. another
1: one on the Beatles. I, I don't know the exact. Do you know this one? No. Uh, I think there are something like I, I I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but maybe three hundred thousand species of beetles. And so in his quote, he basically says, you know, if if God exists. He must have a particular penchant for beetles for having spent so much effort in coming up with all of these different species variations.
0: Yeah, no kidding, right? What, what, Is it frustrating being a man who is an intellectual who is trying to go over the variables and try to figure it all out and piece it together? is it frustrating to you to see these obvious biases and this this obvious muddy thinking that enters into this, this sort of debate?
1: It, it is on two levels. It, on sort of the intrinsic level, I, I'm, I'm a dogged pursuer of the truth, and so I almost get offended by these positions. And so in that sense, it's frustrating. But there's also an extrinsic, a real sort of tangible way that it's frustrating a lot of these gatekeepers are the ones who decide whether i get a position in Mm -hmm. southern california or not and so if i play within the paradigm if i do the research that is expected of me that doesn't sort of bust any existing theories then i'm good but if i'm this guy from the outside who's trying to biologize the field well who's who does this guy think he is? So in that sense, I think it's also frustrating because I mean my wife always tells me, Well, don't worry. I mean, if you can keep this like oh, close, sorry. sorry, it makes a big uh, oh, difference. Is that like, better? Yeah, you can move it around. Oh, it's sure. Just- sorry. Sorry,
0: I don't mean to interrupt. No, you. no worries.
1: So your wife tells yeah, you. Yeah, so my wife tells me, you know, I mean, don't worry. Uh, you know, you you'll get all your vindication. I said, Well, I don't want to get vindicated when I'm
0: dead. Post mortem. Yeah. Post-mortem, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want I I I want the rewards now. And not not in a narcissistic way, but because there are also perks to people finding out that hopefully you are correct now the reality is that more and more people are coming around and so if i look at the level of hostility that i faced 10 years ago versus today it's it's night and day what was the first major backlash that you experienced Uh, from social scientists yes uh not being able—I mean having my papers desk rejected by editors so that's are you familiar with that term? Yes,
0: but explain for people. Who so so not that be. means
1: basically when, when you send your paper to a scientific journal, usually the editor will look at your paper and say, okay, well, uh, here are three reviewers that I think would be appropriate for this paper. And then he sends it off and then the process starts and it goes back and forth for probably several, several years. When he desk rejects it, he's basically saying that this paper is not worthy of even going out for review. And so, you know, I would send all of these papers to these top journals and the the editor would write back to me. Sorry, I'm not even sending it through the review process.
0: What do you remember what one of the original ones was was the subject of? Uh,
1: well, the, probably the first one was one where I was introducing the theoretical framework of how to apply evolutionary psychology in understanding marketing. And usually the 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 argument that I would receive is which which is breathtakingly inane in its stupidity is, uh, well, evolutionary theory is just a bunch of just so storytelling, right? You just come up with these fanciful post hoc stories, since obviously you're not conducting an experiment in a lab to demonstrate evolution. And of course, that, that is so laughable, because if that were true, how is it that astrophysicists study the origin of the universe? That's 14 Billion years ago, right? They certainly yeah. don't conduct an experiment in the lab, uh, and yeah, s- to build their own stars, <laughs> to build their own stars, right? So, but but again, if if you're very paradigmatically bound to you know manipulating something in the lab, then somehow evolutionary theory seems epistemologically, in terms of the philosophy of science, it seems as though it's you're just waving your hand and telling stories, post hoc stories. Now, the reality is that that's exactly the opposite of what we do. If anything, there is no intellectual idea that has received as much empirical support as evolution i mean it is as clear as gravity yet people somehow can't get around to understanding how you could explain something that happened hundreds of thousands if not millions of years ago and so the original rejections were always oh but come on we don't take thing on at faith here we need we need concrete evidence so that's how it all started
0: so that was the first blowback. Did you when did you hesitate when you first experienced this? Did you go, man, I'm going down a dark road? Right. No, because I and, and,
1: and I, that's a great question because I, I think I was fortunate enough to have the personality for this endeavor. In other <laughs> words, it's not just that you had to have the, the brains to do what I was doing. Mm-hmm. If if I would suck my thumb, go into a fetal position and start crying every time somebody rejected me. Uh, rejected my work, then I, it wouldn't. Ha- but because I was a fighter, because I was a high testosterone guy, then that only compelled me to come back and say, I'm going to prove these guys wrong. But it, del- it delayed the process because I was kept out of many of the leading you know, consumer behavior and marketing journals for so I kind of went around them. I, I published books that became bestsellers, I published in, in medicine and economics and psychology. And only recently have I tried to come back to the to the folks that I'm most trying to convince, and those are the consumer psychologists. Now luckily I'm I'm their friend. But for years I was really sort of at the at the periphery.
0: It's fascinating as well that the the attitudes about these subjects have evolved and changed within science and within modern Academia. It's 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 really interesting to see this sort sort of evolution of these ideas and this acceptance of ideas that didn't exist before, but along with. The new craziness, right. the new fat acceptance, and you <laughs> right. know all this other nonsense. Right. this new politically correct terms and this uh, parasitic thinking that you so described so well. Right. Um, th- this is the new threat to to unbiased, objective thinking. Absolutely, this desire to offend no one ever. Absolutely, and and
1: it, you know the reality is that now there's a thing called. Have you heard of trigger warnings? Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> I love them. My whole life's a trigger warning. That's, what, that's exactly what I said. I'm going to put in my course outline, warning. Life is a trigger warning. Yeah. That's it. So, I mean, imagine that, it, as a matter of fact, I, I, in my Wellesley talk that I mentioned earlier, I put up a list of suggested topics that these trigger warning folks were saying require trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was literally everything. The discussion of pregnancy, of sex, of disease, of war, of criminality, of mating, all of these things could potentially uh, cause some distress to somebody and should therefore come with a trigger warning. Now, for somebody who escaped Lebanon under immediate threat of execution, I look at that and I say, we're... we're uh, this is a decadent society in that if that 's the things that worry people, they should really go spend a day in the, in the in the neighborhoods where I grew up, and then maybe they 'd have a different perspective as to what they should be picketing against
0: I agree entirely, and my term is i mean my, not my term, my thought is that people are just so used to this soft life of everything being really easy to achieve that they have never developed this understanding of first of all how fortunate we are to be living this in this time and age to experience this easy life that we live in but that we're really lucky we're really lucky and to to focus on a, a bunch of nonsense and to get carried away thinking about all these ultra super sensitive notions and to to, to, to dwell on them as if in some way you're going to make the world a better place by doing that like it's nonsense it's preposterous because it's they're posers right it's Mm -hmm. a way to demonstrate that i care Mm. But in
1: doing it with very little cost to me, it yes. takes a lot more guts to stand up against Islam than to stand up against some hick uh, evolution denying senator who's Republican. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I look at my Facebook friends, if I put up a, a post uh, that is critical of the senator who is a redneck uh, Republican, I'll get from my academic colleagues 80 likes. Mm-hmm. And it's some inane, silly thing. Mm-hmm. But if I put some horrifying reality about 200,000 Syrians being butchered they are so loud Silent. in their silence, yeah. right? Because that's scary, right? And so, the, for example, the Western feminists are very, very quick to chastise David Letterman if he makes a sexist uh, joke or whatever it was to his intern. Mm-hmm. That shows great courage. But to speak against genital mutilation in the Islamic world or other parts of the world or, or all kinds of other injustices that women face, well, sh- we should be quiet about that. I mean, look at the Ion Hersi Ali Issue. I don't know. Are you familiar with that issue? No. No. Do, do you know who Ayan Hersey Ali is? No. Ayan Hersi Ali is a a woman who was born into Islam, who escaped uh, an arranged marriage, moved to to Netherlands, uh, became a Dutch parliamentarian, and then was part of a, a documentary that was offensive to to uh, some Muslims and then she had to have then protection for the rest of her life now has moved to the United States and has spent pretty much her entire career fighting for the rights of women not just Muslim women women in general but of course many Muslim women in, in those areas are are mistreated so Brandeis University decides to bestow her this is very recently a couple of months ago bestow, bestow her a I think a maybe honorary doctorate or speech convocation to speak at the convocation And then all of the professors rallied against this woman who is speaking on behalf of half the population called women, right? And they said, this is a hate monger, an Islamophobe, blah, blah, blah. And so they rescinded her invitation. Oh, God. And there you go. So, you know, I mean, we're pretty much lost as a society if we can't. Identify who the heroes are and who is on the right side of each issue
0: right? not the, not just that, but the educators are the ones that are having this issue. Right. The educators are the ones that are having a hard time recognizing who 's on the right side of things um, that I think there 's one very important thing that you uh, you brought up, and that 's the the social aspect the the social gratification the, sh- the social reward aspect of supporting. Things that we all agree upon, right. like that these hick senators are bad that's right. that you know and then the the scariness of you know islam the uh, the scariness of uh, you know criticizing the the Muslim world, and then this this concept of islamophobia that's sort of like gotten into people's minds but that thing that people do where they they seek out what I call socially progressive brownie points exactly like men who c- declare themselves openly feminist, right. like male feminists like <laughs> look I'm a humanist I, right. I, I believe that we are all just brothers and sisters on this planet all of us right. including people in other cultures and countries. And I'm not a nationalist. I I think it's all nonsense. I really do. I I mean, I would love it if we could all understand each other. I think it would make a lot more sense if we spoke one language so I could understand people in China. But I don't feel about them any differently than I feel about a guy who lives down the street. I I try very hard to work on that. So when I get this, this thing where people start identifying with one gender and one gender specifically. Right. And there's another thing that men are doing where they're not only proclaiming themselves as a male feminist, but they're also saying that if they are unjustly accused of something that they, you know, they would happily be unjustly accused of something if it could somehow or another prevent women from being persecuted. What martyrs. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that they're so cool and strong like yeah. that. Well, I think it's, I
1: don't know if you know. Do you know the term identity politics?
0: Does that yes, ring about? I've heard the term. So,
1: so basically, you 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 have sort of this balkanization of different identity groups, and there is what's called a poker identity game. You know, which which identity group has larger victimology and greater grievances, and the the, the top group that you really can't touch are are people of the Muslim
0: faith. You what know? about Islamic transgender yeah. male feminists? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the that royal that?
1: flush. That's you got, you're holding fu- the royal flush right there. <laughs> you're a
0: fucking... Yeah, you can't be beat, right? man. You got um, five jokers. Listen, <laughs> at, at,
1: at my university, at my university right now in Montreal, at one point I sat, precisely because people had a sense of some of the positions I held, they asked me to come in and sit on a religious accommodation committee. We're a secular university in a secular society, officially, as the official law. So what does it mean to say that we're going to now enact a religious accommodation policy? I mean, that's like saying, I am a virgin, but I'm pregnant. I mean, it's really (laughs) – the term can't make sense, right? So my position was I am equally non-pliant to anybody's religious beliefs. If Jews come to my class and say, we want to do Yom Kippur, blah, 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 well – I'm Jewish and I'm still going to come to the lecture. But now if Muslims come and say we want to take Hajj for 3 weeks at Mecca so we won't be showing up to your class for 3 weeks, well, I'm equally unreceptive to that idea. Well, it seemed like most people were pretty happy with my general position as long as it didn't apply to this one particular group. Now wow. that that's suicidal, right? That can't be because that's already institutionalizing the fact that people are not all equal. Right. Some people deserve more uh, accommodations than others. That's dangerous. Right. That's so in the U.S. freedom of religion also includes, as you know, I mean, it's a cliche freedom from religion. Be religious. Just don't put it in my face. But I think in our desperate desire to constantly accommodate people, we're going down the wrong path.
0: Not, but not just constantly accommodate people, but accommodate people that are perceived to have been persecuted only, not accommodate people that have a contrary point of view, right. not debate them True. or look at them all objectively True. and consider all the various possibilities. Have we been incorrect in our thinking? Is this a possibility? Like the woman that you were talking about that from Brandeis, I mean, that's, that's unbelievably shocking for someone who have gone through something so so horrifying, to be escaping, running for their life, really, escaping to America, and then to be called an Islamophobe. That's right. And as you said,
1: who is spearheading that? The professors. And by the way, Brandeis University, as you may know, was founded by a liberal, uh, well, by Brandeis, who was trying to kind of found an institution that would be open to all, that would be pluralistic, precisely because of some of the anti-Semitism that Jewish students would have faced at some of the sort of Northeastern schools. And so the school is founded on these principles. And then at first opportunity, you violate everything that you stand for.
0: Is there any movement to try to change this? Is there any discussion to try to uh, uh, illuminate this sort of real issue with academia?
1: Uh, Well, if if I can be a modest, I think, you know, it's guys like me who are tr- who are really in the wilderness who try to come out of the woodworks and have the courage and the big testicles to try to do that. But I think most people have herd instinct.
0: But even if you say that, you have the testicles to do this? How dare you? You can't do this with ovaries? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? That's
1: More not, patriarchy. I, I apologize for having said that. I have testicles.
0: No, it's it's, it's an expression. It's courage. <laughs> Women have balls too. I know a lot of chicks with balls. Yes. You know, if you look at it that way. But it's unfortunate that a woman has yeah. to hear that and go, "Oh, well, great." It's associated yeah. with the male gender. You know, if, uh, well, that's true. But if a guy is a great guy, oh, that guy's the tits. <laughs> I mean, that is something that people say too. Like They're my right. friend Steve, he says every everything is good. He calls titties. <laughs> like, oh, that is a titties movie, man. Like, you know, like, I
1: was, I was. Uh, I, I used to be a competitive soccer player, and uh, the kind of trash talking that would happen as as you would know i mean you 're an athlete uh, is is astounding the things i mean that would be said in terms for example of calling you some homophobic slur name that 's right? a go to move right or or calling you i mean I remember at one point I played in a, in a league called the Black League where there were only two not two non black guys okay I was one of them, and so they you know i would if somebody would tackle me say you know Stop whining, get up, white bitch, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in today's now, usually the way I fought that is, I'd say, I'm now going to get by this guy next time around, and I'm going to score a goal. I didn't kind of curl into a fetal position and start crying. Well, today they are, I mean, facetiously, there are commissars standing around the field, making sure that nobody utters any of these slur words, because then you could be taken to a hate speech code tribunal. I mean, in Canada, we have hate speech laws. I mean, how could that be? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we should all be insulting one another, and of course, we should all be kind and gentle to each other. But the idea that if you tell me "white bitch," I could actually impose upon you to go to a hate speech tribunal is astounding. I mean, what's freedom of speech? I mean, freedom of speech. Is the right to also be an asshole correct yeah uh, and but unfortunately now everything is sanitized everything is you know just
0: well, well freedom of speech is the right to be an asshole but on in in other terms freedom of speech on the other hand in response to your being an asshole is the right to ostracize you like exactly. it's the right to just get you out of social groups and that's how you recognize assholes exactly but when you, you sanitize the world and remove half the language and put trigger warnings up for everything that everybody says it's very difficult to get to the heart of what someone's trying to communicate right when we're making mouth noises trying to express our thoughts and we're limited in such an amazing way by so many different forms of expression
1: well here's here's a great example that's happening all over the west and certainly in canada and the u.s try to give a lecture or invite somebody either that has a pro-Israel position or an anti-Islam position and see what ah. happens. Okay? Go to UC Irvine and see what happens. Uh, the, 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 the former ambassador of Israel tried to come and give a, a, a lecture. And I mean, it wasn't an incendiary thing. He wasn't going to you know, be saying some horribly controversial things. Mm-hmm. And yet they tried to shut him down. Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel, was shut down at my university. Wow! At Concordia University in Montreal, the Prime Minister of a democratically elected government, our only supposed true ally in the Middle East, was unable to speak because there was great uh, threat of danger. Now that's a very astonishingly dangerous, right? I mean, if if if, if that guy can't speak. Uh, probably you and I are not going to have much of a voice.
0: There was a university in Toronto. um, I forget which one, but there was a a speech by a guy who was considered to be a men's rights advocate, with the the, the insult, as they call them, MRAs. And he had written a book, and he was giving the speech, and these feminists were protesting. I think York University. Was it York? I think it was York. And violent opposition and what he had uh, what they had said that he said and what he actually said there was so completely diametrically up op- I mean yeah. it was so Incorrect. That it was almost like they had never read what he had right. said. They had just decided that this guy was, was a target because he was uh, he was an example. He was a figurehead of the patriarchy, and so they, these people were showing up for these lectures. Like, look, I, I, like I said, I li- read websites that I don't agree with. I watch uh, Republican de- uh, debates. I watch. Uh, I, I I watch these bizarre Republican Fox News talk shows where they have these insane views of the world. I don't agree with them. Right. I watch it because I'm fascinated. I watch it because I, I want to know what this knucklehead thinks about right. you know God and climate change. God has a great <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> he, you That's, know, look the world. I have the, we we played a video the other day of a woman who's she's running for Congress. This crazy bitch. She she was she said I can prove there's no global warming with a simple tool, a thermometer, <laughs> and she pulls it out like. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that lady. I will watch that lady talk. It doesn't mean I, I agree right. with her. So these these feminists, these radical feminists, as it were, whenever you're a radical any, anything, right. you're usually an idiot. Right. But these radical feminists were keeping people from attending this, not just the people that were speaking. You know, They weren't uh, protesting the people that were speaking. They were screaming and yelling at the people that were trying to go in to listen to this person talk, agree or disagree. The idea that you are... Trying to oppose or trying to stop, you're in opposition of a person listening to a contrary point of view. That's amazing.
1: Well, I... I, Very dangerous. Very dangerous. I I wrote an an article on my Psychology Today blog uh, maybe about two years ago where this wasn't my study. I was simply summarizing somebody else's work. What he had basically done, or I think there were several researchers, they had looked at the political leanings of professors at American universities. Uh, whether they're Democrat or Republican, and they actually then broke it down by departments. So, for example, what would be the Democrat versus Republican ratio in sociology versus in uh, physics? What they found is that I think if I'm going on memory, I think that the ratio is about five to one Democrat to, um, to Republican and in some departments most notably for example in the humanities and sociology and so on it was 44 to 1 oh. now i i i didn't present this as this is good or this is bad but i certainly was trying to make the point that on some issues that's not a good idea for example what should be fiscal policy uh, you know what should be our position regarding immigration uh, uh what what is the position regarding the death penalty these are not clear sort of scientifically you know, right? I mean, it, it depends. And to have a sanitized campus where only one group of people really dominate, I thought was dangerous. You should have seen the blowback I got there.
0: I'm sure. What are,
1: now, well, the only thing that protects me in such situations is that being Canadian – I could say these things without appearing as though I have a dog in the fight. Hey, I'm not Democrat, I'm not Republican, I'm Canadian, Mm -hmm. so I must be unbiased. And so, in a sense, they'll give me a bit of a get-out-of-jail card because (laughs) it doesn't appear as though I'm fighting for one or the other. But still, the blowback was astonishing because how dare I point to this as though it were a bad thing? I mean, everybody knows that every Democrat is perfect on everything and every Republican is an idiot, You know, toothless, evolution-denying buffoon. And that strikes me as astonishing from otherwise intelligent people. The world is more nuanced, right? There are many issues on which I agree with Democrats as a Canadian. There are a few issues on which I actually agree more with Republicans.
0: Uh, and so I kind of pick and choose my battles. But that's not how it is in academia. Well, in, in their defense, though, the, the the points that are taken by the Republicans so often are they're really – If you had to choose, like, one side that's paying attention to science and one side that's paying attention to religion, it's pretty clear. Well, listen, and I'm an evolutionist. So,
1: obviously, when it's going to come on that issue, I'm going to be a lot more with the Democrats than all the... But, for example, my position, you may disagree. I hope you don't kick me out of here. I will never Uh, kick you out of here. You're very kind. Uh, (laughs) The death penalty. uh, Mm -hmm. I think that if you are caught having raped and killed 10 children and we've got the DNA of of you on the in the tension. It's, it's incontrovertible that you are guilty. Uh, I don't see it as a terrible moral uh, issue that we could potentially discuss the possibility of executing you. As a matter of fact, I think that in some cases, the amount of rights that we give to otherwise horrifying monsters, that itself is barbaric. So on that dimension, I'm likely to be much more Republican.
0: And I am as well. Oh, I agree you with you
1: 100%. So you know nuanced thinking is, is a mark of somebody who kind of has a sense of what the
0: world looks like. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, also a mark of someone who doesn't have a dog in the fight, as you exactly. sp- said before. I think it, when you look at the world, there's a lot of variables that must be taken into consideration. As soon as you deny those variables, because you have a specific stance, it's a predetermined pattern of thinking that you've uh, aligned yourself with i'm on the left and as a democrat like i was having a conversation with someone the other day and they were talking about um upcoming elections and they said if we lose the house if we lose com-. like he's a fucking comedian yeah, yeah. he's a comedian <laughs> that i'm talking to and he's talking about the democrats yeah, and yeah. he's on team we. we yeah and i'm like wow I'm hundred percent for the death penalty in term in, in like uh, a Ted Bundy type character, some monster. But my problem with it, my number one problem with it, is that I don't believe that the system is a good system. Right. I don't I don't believe it's inf- infallible. I think there's a lot of issues when it comes to people who are prosecutors who deny evidence, withhold evidence. They 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 know that they're wrong, and they yeah. still arrest people. They still prosecute people. There's been so many instances of that. I can't trust their judgment. I can't trust. There was a video the other day of a man uh, who's a police officer pulling uh, some woman. She was trying to resist. He threw her to the ground and he's beating her, punching her in the face in, in Los Angeles. And as long as that is a part of our legal system, mm. that this this guy I mean, she wasn't fighting back. He wasn't he wasn't fighting for his life. She was resisting I don't know what the circumstances were, but whatever I know is if that is the only way you can handle that woman, you shouldn't be a police officer. Right. I mean that's ridiculous as long as that exists, that's part of our legal system, that's a, just a human flaw. Yeah. That exists on all levels. That'll exist as far as a police officer who's on the street, that'll exist as far as a prosecutor, as a judge, that a person running a prison. There's going to be human flaws in, in the entire system. And that's the only reason why I hesitate as far as... Uh, I hear you. But in that sense, yeah, I'm way more Republican than I am Democrat. I, I, I tell you
1: a story about uh, sort of police misconduct Uh, many years ago i had met a uh uh, a guy who had served as a public uh, defender yes uh, in the la county system and as we were chatting you know i was very interested in all the stuff that he had to say he said to me one advice i could give you is don't ever do anything in california that would have you end up in la county jail i said oh why is that i said give me an example of why would somebody like me he goes let's suppose you're a recidivist uh uh, drink and drive kind of guy, and the cops are pissed off at you. They'll take you to the jail. They'll throw you with all the gang bangers, and they'll simply scream out, "Fresh fish out of water." That's exactly the term that he used, which basically is the code word for "Have at him, boys," and we won't uh, we won't hear, hear his screams. And and I remember Whoa. this this was, this was in the late 80s, um, and and subsequently, I actually met the son of this guy. Coincidentally, And later found out that that was his father. By, by coincidence, he was an academic also. But anyway, so that's, that's an example of misconduct where, you know, if you piss off these cops, they could do all sorts of things to you that uh, can have some profound consequences on your body.
0: Yeah, I just want to state for the record, I'm a big supporter of law enforcement. <laughs> Always have been. If one bad cop does not. Cops make bad. <laughs> make all cops bad. Um, it's, it's humans. We're flawed, you know. Not every, uh, not every doctor is a good person. I mean, Wonderful. I have a friend who used to work when he was younger. He worked um, at a resort, and uh, he said he would overhear these doctors. Very specifically, remembered overhearing these doctors bragging about talking this guy into a surgery and about how he's going to buy a car now. You know, like uh, that's a you know wow. that's a, a new whatever it was, you know, Porsche whatever. For me, you know, you know this, and he was bragging about talking to this guy into surgery. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, and that's real. That does happen. Sure, you know there, there's bad people in all walks of life, and I think th- that is my number one, my only really resistance to something like the death penalty. Right. But when you look at the recidivism rates for child rapists, it's just through the roof. It's crazy. I
1: I don't know if you've seen the stat, uh, I, and I can't cite who who came up with it, but uh, apparently when you catch a pedophile, he's on average committed one hundred. Transgressions prior to you catching him for the first time, right? So, so why does this guy benefit from all of our legals? I mean, you know, if you've done this this stuff so many times, uh, why do we have to be so humane? I would actually argue it's inhumane to be so humane to this guy. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article on on Psychology Today where I was talking about. I don't know if you remember the case with uh, these two guys in Connecticut who did a home invasion. And they raped the girls and the mother and set the house on fire, mm-hmm. beat the father, but he survived and so on. And so it was coming up to their death penalty. And so I – in sort of in, as a tribute to that case, I wrote a, a, an article on my Psychology Day blog, which I think I titled, Is the Death Penalty Barbaric? And I was arguing that in, for these kinds of guys, no, it's not. Well, you should have seen my progressive, enlightened, cafe-sipping academic colleagues scoff at my barbarism right i mean i would, what kind of hick must i be to actually even hold those sentiments
0: well i got news for you man if it comes between putting me in jail for the rest of my life in some cage where i have to be constantly in fear of men raping me and stabbing (laughs) me with toothbrushes that they've sharpened knives i'll take death yeah exactly i mean i think we should all if there's no no possible reasonable hope for parole the idea of keeping someone in in a jail to rot for the rest of their life is probably more suffering more cruel exactly yeah it's just bizarre the idea that that's that's Somehow or another, humane is so crazy. And a lot of them, by the way, solitary confinement, which is probably one of the worst things that you could do to a person. Well, especially a social, a social animal such yeah. as us, right? Well, a yeah. person. We, people are weird. We need to be connected so much, and one of the worst punishments you could do is just leave us alone. While we're in prison, surrounded by murderers, rapists, thieves, thugs, drug dealers, the worst thing they can do is put you by yourself.
1: That's exactly right. Amazing. There's a guy I don't remember his name, a Harvard uh, professor who had studied, uh, you know, what makes people healthy for for something like sixty years. And I think the bottom line, if I'm paraphrasing him, is that people need social relationships to be healthy. That's sort of the number one thing that maintains your health, psychological and physiological, mm.
0: and happy social relationships exa- too. Exactly. I mean, I everyone that I know that has these horrible relationships with either boyfriends and girlfriends or with their parents or with their job or the like they seem to like carry those on like all the time it's like becomes almost a part of the norm of relationships but the people that i know that have healthy relationships with their boyfriends and girlfriends or wives and husbands healthy relationships with their children healthy relationships with their friends those are the happiest people i know right like you, can't, you can foster that and you can somehow or another ge- generate this sort of beautiful environment around the closest people to you. Right. You'll have a much better life. It's just that simple.
1: And, and by the way, evolutionary psychologists study all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, Why is it that we would jump into a river to save two brothers or better yet, why would we jump into a river to save a stranger? Mm. And, and it, it, it boils down to the fact that it's tit for tat, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's what's called reciprocal altruism. Uh, are you familiar with this this yes. this notion so so you so you hope yeah. that someone would do that for you someday exactly yes, uh, and so the idea that you know as you said that it 's a real punishment to put people in, uh, in in confinement is 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 bore out by evolutionary
0: theory. My friend Remy jumped into a river to save a woman she uh, She was in a canoe, the canoe flipped over, her husband drowned the husband 's body floated face first past him, and the woman was screaming, "Help me." And he saw he saw her in the river, and he just dove in. And he's lucky. He's in incredible shape, and he's an outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. He's there. all the, he's, he's a very good athlete, very good swimmer. He's got real good endurance. So he got to death's door. Like, literally was wow. on death's door, thought it was over, thought it, he's not going to make it out of here. Like, he just sacrificed his life to try to save this woman and then rescued her. Wow. They they figured out their way to shore. But when he describes the f- the feeling and the experience, it was almost beyond his control. It was like he— wow he saw this woman he it was only him there was no one else there there's he had to do it and just jumped in
1: well there's this thing uh speaking of guys who are in the business of doing heroic acts there's a you've heard of the fireman fantasy i mean that the fact that women find guys well firemen to be very attractive and it actually turns out that there was a study that was done that actually shows this to be the case. And I discussed this in one of my articles on Psychology Today. Uh, if you have a guy approach women either wearing a fireman suit or not, uh, his chances of getting her phone number increases quite substantially. Really? If he is wearing a fireman. So,
0: How do they know this? Did well, they do a study? They, they, they actually, actually got the, a guy the, to wear the, a fireman's yeah, yeah, outfit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did they have the same guy not wear the fireman's exactly, outfit? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. With the same approach and the same... Same words, same
1: script, same everything. One version. It's called the field experiment. In one version, you you approach women at a cafe wearing the stuff, and another version you don't. The guy who actually did that research is a French psychologist. His name is Nicolas Guéguin. And I've actually covered a few of his um, studies on my website uh, my most read article ever over maybe three four hundred thousand readers is is one of his studies where I was simply because we 're going to talk about the blowback issue now and here again. it was a study where he looked at the likelihood of women being picked up as hitchhikers as a function of their breast size so he actually had the same woman and they you know artificially manipulated her breast size and on different days she would stand there. And and of course, it turned out that men were much more likely to pick up the woman if she had the same woman, if she had bigger breast size. So I just summarized that study, put it up. And then I remember I'd gone on vacation, uh, came back from vacation, found out that it had completely gone viral. But I had... A million hate mail, not just from readers, but from fellow psychology today bloggers who were arguing that I was, you know, peddling pornography because I had a picture as the teaser image for that article. I had a photo of a woman sitting in a passenger seat with big, with large breasts. Well, it seemed appropriate for the topic, given that that's what the topic of the study was. But by putting that image, I was objectifying women. I was treating them as mere sex objects. And so even though I had nothing to do with the study and I was simply summarizing somebody else's work, I was a horrifying pornographic peddler.
0: Isn't it funny that just a photograph of a woman with large breasts is considered pornographic? <laughs> but now listen to this. So then I've also written
1: articles on Psychology Today where I talk about all kinds of issues dealing with penis size. You know, so do women want a guy with a bigger penis? Are they more likely to have orgasm if he's got a bigger penis? Uh... If you're in a gay relationship, man-man, are you likely to be top or bottom as a function of your penis size? That study has been done by science. And so for those articles, I put sexy images of men. So then I wrote to each of those people who had written The Hate Man. I said, well, in all fairness, you now have to write an equally hateful thing because I am also sexually exploiting men's bodies. Of course, they went away and never came back.
0: yeah well the idea being that women are more suppressed than men right. it's not equal but it is equal right <laughs> yeah it's it's very tricky but the idea that a woman with big breasts sitting there in a passenger seat of a car could somehow or another be pornographic is ridiculous yeah. women have big breasts some of them they exist some I men mean, have big penises yeah it, it all it's all real stuff some, some people have two eyes <laughs> well
1: and and, people and have noses interestingly some of the psychology these are psychologists mm-hmm. were saying why do you write about these issues of sexuality what does that have to do with psychology why are you so so that psychologists could actually argue that issues dealing with sexuality were outside the purview of psychology that's
0: breathtaking well it's stupid it's really it's it's scary stupid because it's denying reality in order to fit with your ideology this ideology of politically correct thinking and i don't like the term politically correct i don't like it because it's it's been sort of overrun and overused and it's kind of like it's a beaten term right you know but it's the appropriate one just to convey the idea right but it's just—it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent, and the the fact that it's so prevalent amongst academics is really disturbing to me.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah, how, have you had have you had many other academics on the show? Yeah, yeah, quite a oh, few. Okay. Yeah, and what's how are they like in terms of their general positions?
0: Um, well, many many of them share your points of view. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. you know, luckily. Now, is
1: it just that you happen to to yeah. gravitate towards guys that you would think that already would sort of not be these little wimpy guys, or or I mean, how come it turns out that they're all sharing – because we're certainly in the
0: minority in academia. So how – Those are the only ones I'm interested in talking yeah, okay, to, sense. I guess. I mean, I'm I'm actually quite fascinated in talking – I would love to talk to some ardent male feminist right. who shares these Islamophobic uh, hating ideas like uh, the hating Islamophobia and oh, hating I'll, I'll, I'll send male you, I'll patriarchy. Send, I'll send you some names. <laughs> but the problem is, you know, it would, get, it would get ugly somewhere along the line. Right. You know, I'm sure – one of us would resort to insults <laughs> not I, I wouldn't be i mean I'm, i wouldn't but I, I am utterly fascinated by ideology right. in ideologies that i support or do not support you know, all of them. I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by the Dalai Lama. I'm fascinated right. by how many people take a guy who only wears orange robes seriously. Like, <laughs> come on, do you really think God gives a fuck what clothes you wear? Right. Is he is he staying warm in that outfit, or is he? Right. He's no different than that fucking Phil Robertson guy that's from uh, Duck Dynasty who always wears camo. He's wearing a <laughs> right. goddamn outfit, right. and by that outfit, you recognize that he oh he's a man of peace and of, yeah, yeah. of enlightened thinking. No, he's a silly man who wears orange who doesn't have sex. Okay, and why does he not have sex? Because he has an ideology, right. this ideology tells him that he's a holy man from birth. That's right. And if you don't think that's fucking ridiculous, because he's friends with Sharon Stone, you and I have nothing to talk about. <laughs> right. Oh, he's he's buddies with Richard Gere. He must right. be holy. Get the fuck out of here, man.
1: I, you know it's funny you you talk about these Hollywood types. I I wrote an article which one of those really popular ones on Psychology Today, where I was talking about the narcissism and grandiosity of celebrities, mm. where. Uh, they, they. uh What's her name? Uh, Madonna, because of her Kabbalah juice. Uh, says that uh, the radiation problem in some lake in Ukraine could be resolved by putting some Kabbalah juice on it, and she's really what? Dis- she's really astounded. <laughs> Come on,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute. The- no, no, it's there What's somewhere Kabbalah for- juice? I don't know
1: some Kabbalah holy water. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to help her uh, in any way
0: by bringing this up anymore.
1: You know, Gwyneth Paltrow had some other thing about beauty. Um, the the play um, the 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 autism girl I've
0: written about. Oh, Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy, Mm, the autism autism
1: (laughs) was was shocked that the NIH, the National Institute of Health, was Mm -hmm. not taking her scientific research seriously, demonstrating that that's what. Right? I mean, is she a scientist? No, she has Uh, research. She, but she. I think she must have played once at some point. Uh, No, but seriously, and and what I argue there is that uh, you know, if you're if you're walking all day with yes men catering to each of your whims you actually live in a world where you truly start thinking that you're a deity I mean you really did save the world I'm Tom Cruise and I saved the world in Mission Impossible whatever and therefore it is perfectly reasonable that I have something profound to say about everything right therefore Tom Cruise says that there is no such thing as psychiatric uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, illnesses you just have to do exercise and and vitamins and that we don't take that seriously is really an affront to him Mm -hmm. and so I had written an article where I was saying that it's, it's really astounding the type of narcissism that these folks... Uh, and I argued that it, in part it comes from a form of guilt that deep in the recesses of their bedrooms when they turn off the lights, many of them actually know that they are frauds that are not really deserving of all of the perks that they've received. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that maybe I could... Fix that is by demonstrating that I'm much more than a mere actor. I'm really mm-hmm. helping in Darfur. I'm really helping solve the radiation problem in the Ukraine, uh, and so on and so forth. Because then I seem as though maybe I am more worthy of all the accolades that are being bestowed upon me.
0: That's a very fascinating way of looking at it. And I think you probably are onto something there. I think uh, the the knowledge and the the understanding that they're frauds, the the the, the, the deep-seated knowledge, whether they avoid it and deny it or not, I, I, there's a lot of people that are horrible people that are involved in charitable organizations. Right. And one of the reasons being is to tr- sort of show that they are good people. Exactly. Like, there's a guy who's uh, a pretty blatant plagiarist who's involved in some pretty uh, interesting charities, good charities, very good charities, but... I had a conversation with someone about it, and they were talking about, "Hey, you know what? He does so much good for this uh, organization. I don't, I don't care." I go, "Do you understand that that's probably why he does that?" Exactly. Like the guy's a complete sociopath. He's fucked over his friends. He's stolen their work and passed it off as his own. Yet he supports firefighters. Do you you not understand that that's what's going on there? I mean, he's pretty obvious. If you listen to him talk for any long period of time, there's something wrong. There's like some, some connections inside the mind that are not being made. And he's had a strategy. And the strategy to avoid criticism is to show charitable work. Like Lance Armstrong, whenever he was confronted about his drug use, he'd always talk about how much he's doing for cancer. For cancer research, right. that was his whole thing. Despite the fact that he'd sued people that had claimed that they their lives um, had been affected by his drug use, right. that they, they you know that people that they love had been uh, drug tested and that they you know they lost their whole entire career and that they were aligned with Lance Armstrong, did drugs with Lance Armstrong. Right. Lance Armstrong would sue these people, you know, you're li- And then finally came out and told the truth and you know, passed off his organization to other people. Now he's a fucking broken man. Yeah, yeah. Rightly so. Cause he's right. a f- goddamn sociopath, but that this instance or this insistence rather of being a part of a charitable organization and being the figurehead, not just silently. Like I don't, I, I'm a big fan of not talking about, Charities right. that right. I contribute to I don't like to because right. I think there's something, something sneaky about it's almost like it, 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 it Like if you give a thousand dollars to a charity, but then you let everybody know hey I just gave a thousand dollars to a charity.
1: I talk about that in my books. Let me tell yeah, you about so there's something uh, there You know who Maimonides is an old philosopher, Jewish philosopher from the 12th century He's a very very important guy in uh-huh. Jewish moral philosophy uh, He talked about eight levels of tzedakah tzedakah is Charity giving, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the purity of the act, the most pure form of tzedakah is where the altruist and the recipient of the altruism don't know of one another, because and he said this a thousand years ago where he had no evolutionary training, but I then I then package it as a, as an evolutionary argument, because there is great social signaling rewards that come from you writing the Joe Rogan Cancer war right? Yes. right? You right. Uh, if you are in a why do the upper uppers don't drive Maseratis? Because everybody in their circle can also buy a Maserati, so they actually drive pretty, oftentimes pretty, you know, cheapish cars. Because that's not going to be a very honest signal of my true value. Because mm-hmm. everybody in my social group can imitate it. But if I can give hundred million dollars to the so-and-so cancer or buy a hundred million dollar painting that a two-year-old could could have otherwise painted boy that's an honest signal of my quality right yeah and so i actually (laughs) talk about this exact idea of of not advertising your generosity
0: yeah, I call it happiness bombs when I leave a, a big tip at a restaurant and I get out of there before the waiter can see what the tip oh, that's is. that's nice. I like to do that. I like to leave big tips and then run. Get the fuck out of there. I don't <laughs> want to see that person. I, I say thank you to them on the way out the door, but I don't want them to see the tip and then thank me back because it almost like... You know, it takes away from it. It's like, like I said, if someone donates $1,000 but then tells the world they donated $1,000, I think you owe another 1000 <laughs> You know, you, you owe a silent 1000
1: do, do you know the show you know, – you must know the show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. So there is an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David is at some function with Ted Danson. They both gave anonymous donations, but everybody keeps walking up to Ted Danson telling him, oh, congratulations on this donation. That was so generous of you. So Larry Davis goes, David goes crazy because he goes, that's bullshit, man. You're benefiting from this whole thing. It's not anonymous. Nobody knows. Like It's exactly what we're talking about, right? So that whole episode was a great episode because whoever wrote it actually understands our
0: human nature yeah that's a fascinating, fascinating aspect of human beings this this need to be considered altruistic yeah. this need to be considered benevolent you know the, to to advertise it instead of just being. You know, that, the, that you can't exist in the silence of the personal satisfaction of contributing right. and giving, giving out love and, and generosity, that you have to be rewarded for it. Well, I have a section
1: in my first book, which I titled Philanthropy as a Costly Signal. The costly signaling in biology, so the peacock's tail is a costly signal. Because it actually serves as a really honest signal of my worth. For me to carry this burdensome tail and avoid predators, then you really should take me seriously, all you female hens, because here, I am here and I've survived. So that's called an honest signal or a costly signal. Well, philanthropy, I argue, in many cases, is that us… On a signal precisely for the reasons that we're talking about so
0: i am fascinated by peacocks i'm fascinated <laughs> by black guys who go to clubs with a hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry on them you know I, I i it's amazing that that aspect of especially the rap community well you know the the, the throwing the money mm-hmm. in all the videos yeah, it i've rain. got a
1: making it, i got an article on that man <laughs> did you ever think that you would have a scientist on your show talking about the evolutionary roots of making it rain did no you
0: know? no i'm so happy to talk to you now well, I was happy to talk to you already, but now more so. <laughs> um, what, is, what is that, like the the, the the diamonds and the gold chains? And, and why is it specifically connected to the african-american community as opposed to you know i mean the italian-american community was always gold chains a little bit right. gold, but not as much diamonds and i mean black people took it to a totally new level
1: right I, I can't speak to why one culture decides to use one particular form of status if you're the maasai tribe in in africa it might be the number of cattle heads that you have that is the peacocking, right? Mm -hmm. So what we do know is that different cultures will use different forms of peacocking, but in all cultures it is going to
0: be the male's in that culture who engage in the act that's the universal the peacocking in the african-american community is most fascinating because a lot of these rappers come from these very poor neighborhoods right. so they're dealing with a lot of poverty and crime and they as they're growing up and then as they get older their identities once they become connected to success are also connected to firearms and right. and diamonds specifically diamonds yeah okay. they're, they're all they have blinged out everything right. blinged out teeth, teeth yeah I right. mean how crazy is that you're yeah. walking around with a hundred thousand dollars worth of dental appliances that, right. I mean probably more right. I, I don't understand diamonds right. so I don't I don't own any diamonds so when I say a hundred thousand dollars I don't I might be way off
1: <laughs> there was a company called um, well, I don't remember the name of the company but the, the project was called American brand stand a play on American bandstand Dick, what is, the, what is the guy's name? Yeah, Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Uh, Dick Clark. Uh, so what they did is they did, they, they, looked, they did a content analysis of brand mentions in Billboard Top 100 to see how often brands are mentioned. You know, hey girl, I've got the Maserati. And what they found, not surprisingly, is that it's almost exclusively in hip-hop videos. It's almost exclusively male rappers who do this behavior and it wasn't diamonds actually what the number one product was cars mm. so cars were overwhelmingly the most often cited form of peacocking in rap video in rap songs
0: i was at a uh, an event a kickboxing event in los angeles the other day with my friends eddie and tate and we uh we when we showed up this guy pulled up in this bright orange lamborghini this crazy you know car with the gold wing doors that pop up and uh I we were talking and I'm a fan of cars. I love cars, but I do not like Lamborghinis. I think they're foolish. I think the the doors are foolish. I mean, I, they break all the time. I have a friend who reviews cars, and he reviewed this Lamborghini Aventador, and he said it broke down after like two. They, they had it for two days, and the transmission exploded. And I was laughing about it, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, why would you spend a half a million dollars on that car? Like, there's some brilliant pieces of... I'm a big fan of cars. I'm a big fan of engineering in general. I love well-engineered watches. I love a well-engineered table. I love laptop. Right. I'm, fascin- I'm fascinated by human innovation. So when I see certain cars, I am fascinated by them. But when I see that one, I just think, that's just so goofy. And my friends were like, bro, that car gets you pussy. <laughs> And I was like, really? Does it really? Like, come on, man. There's a girl. Would a girl bank? So we had this debate. Would a girl have sex with you if she saw you in that car? Let me answer the as question As opposed to, please do, as opposed to, let's say, a Corvette. And like, no, man, anybody can get a Corvette. A Corvette is a, a, like my friend Tay goes, man, a girl will hop in your car just to see where you live if you have that car. They just want to see where your house is. You got a $500,000 car, what the fuck does that dude's house look like?
1: So I'll tell you. Three scientific studies, one of which is mine, and then a personal story of my brother who lives in Southern California. Uh, So Nicolas Gauguin, the guy who did the breast and French guy, guy, uh, did a study... Uh, very much similar in spirit where instead of manipulating the fireman's suit, he had the same guy approach different women as a function of – and manipulated which car he was driving. I can't remember the exact details, but it's something like it's, there's a three-time increase in the likelihood of a woman giving you her phone number if you are driving a high-status car versus a low-status car. It's, a, really? it's the exact same Three guy. times. Three times greater. Wow. Uh, and the same guy, by the way, did another study where he uh, – he, he was either he, – he the guy who was approaching the women was either with a baby or not and in another version with a dog or not. Having a dog increases digits of attention and have, uh, interacting with a baby – also increases it. So I joke that you should be driving a, a Lamborghini while having a dog next to you and a baby while wearing a fireman suit. You're going, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're going to get all the ladies in Orange County and, uh,
0: <laughs> in Newport, and Beach. Newport
1: Beach. So that's one. And another study, and then I'm going to come to my study in a second. And another study, not by this guy, they took the same man, put him either in a Bentley or in a whatever Ford Fiesta, and did the same thing with the same woman, with a woman, and then it was opposite sex rating. So the women would rate the two guys, and the same guy when he is in the Bentley was viewed as astonishingly more handsome. Which of course objectively can't be. I mean, your your physiolog your your physical traits don't change, but there was a glow effect from the car that he's driving. He, he's he's handsome. He's he's a Brad Pitt in this car. He's a loser in this other car. But the same manipulation on women. Men didn't care. In other words, their evaluations of how attractive the woman was did not depend on which car she was seated in. So
0: I would think that with men and with women, that the women it would be more intimidating to the men if the women drove a Bentley. Oh, because uh, they have high
1: status. Yeah, perhaps.
0: Well, especially if you have a a Toyota, some crappy car. Yeah, nice car, Toyota. You know, not a bad car, but just not a high status car. But if you pulled up in a, you know. Whatever, you know, name it Chevy Cobalt or something like that. Right. And the, you know, the girl you're going to go on a date with pulls up in a Fair. Lamborghini. You're like, oh, what the fuck? Right. right. I would think that for some men, they find that. Some men find women that are very successful intimidating really, and not attractive.
1: they were just asking them, how good looking do you think they are? So oh, looks, I see. Specific so specific
0: to physical attraction. Okay. Yeah. So the, yeah, I would say the physical attraction wouldn't change, but I would exactly. say that the desire to approach that person or the willingness to approach that person. I'm with you. Yeah, I think women with, like, a really expensive car would be intimidating. Third study,
1: Uh and then the personal story from my brother. Uh, I did a study a few years ago where I brought – this was a former graduate student of mine. We brought people into the lab, and then we rented a Porsche. This wasn't imagine you're driving a Porsche. We actually rented a Porsche, and as I I tell in one of my TED Talks, try to get a uh, granting agency to release money to do research – where you're going where you're saying basically I'm going to rent a Porsche for the weekend as part of my research so uh, we rented a, a Porsche and then we had some other beaten up car and we had the same men drive both cars either in downtown Montreal on a Friday evening where everybody could see you driving the car or on a semi deserted highway where nobody could see you and at the end of each of the driving conditions we collected salivary assays to then measure their fluctuating levels of testosterone and the idea being that uh, when you put them in the porsche it's going to explode and that's exactly what we found uh, you and now some one of the reviewers had written he said but how do you know that that's just not because they're driving fast and so that's causing a rise in testosterone and the way we could control for that is on downtown montreal on a friday evening It's bumper-to-bumper traffic. I mean, it's, it's, it's like being in a parking lot. So it's certainly not because you were driving fast. It's because everybody could see that I am sitting in a Porsche. So your endocrinological system exploded simply because of this imbuing of social status to you. And we know this from other animals where if you and I fight, if we're two males, we fight. If you win, your testosterone goes up. If I lose, my testosterone goes down. And so here we were applying this exact idea to the consumer setting.
0: So the person that was in the fast car that was on a a deserted stretch of highway just going fast, their testosterone didn't rise? No, it did. It did. We actually predicted
1: that it would rise in both those conditions but it would rise more when there's a public audience to see you doing it. Right, that makes sense. right? What we found is that irrespective of the environment, you put a young male in a Porsche, his endocrinological system explodes. So the environment didn't matter, just the fact that you were imbuing me with this immediate social status, uh, resulted in the same increase in testosterone
0: well isn't it also an engine thing too with young men i know that they have done uh studies where they sh- had young men rev engines just a, like a v8 a powerful v8 just the sound of and that increases testosterone yeah, increases testosterone oh, I, I don't yeah. think i know
1: that study you, you're gonna need to send me that yeah
0: email. I, w- I will as soon as yeah. i find it um but the 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 test that you give them how much of a variable – how much of a variance was there between not driving that car and driving that car? It, well, s-
1: statistically significant. So it was certainly strong enough to pick up a, a big difference from the Toyota to the other car.
0: Right. Do you remember the percentage? Uh, I don't. No? I could send I you the paper. I think that would be big. Yeah. For athletes, just drive around in a fast car and it would be good for your recovery. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because your well, testosterone I, would increase. Well,
1: I always joke uh, with my wife and I tell her that since men – As they enter middle age, their testosterone goes down. If I now have to buy a luxury car, that's just medically mandated.
0: (laughs) Well, is that what's going on when men have this midlife crisis? Like, that's what women – I mean, it's always the joke with women that they see a guy in a Ferrari and he's like 50 years old. Sorry about your penis, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But is that – Well, I did – I have a study
1: that's not yet published speaking of – the car you drive and some morphological feature—you're gonna like this one. Um, so this is not published yet. With one of my former doctoral students, we actually ha- we created online dating profiles of a man where everything is the same, except that in one version his prized favorite position is a fancy red Porsche or some shitty Kia or whatever it is, and then we asked men and women who were looking at this profile to evaluate the guy's height. Watch what happened. Men, when they evaluate the guy with the Porsche, denigrate his height.
0: He's Ah. shorter.
1: Women increase his height. This is exactly what you would expect from an evolutionary perspective, right? Sure. Right? Status is a threatening cue for men. Therefore, it serves as an intrasexual rivalry cue. So if you're in a fancy car, oh, Joe must be some short, wimpy guy. Women, on the other hand, will look at Joe, the exact same Joe. He, your,
0: your height didn't magically change I say, wow, Joe was a tall guy. A very That's fascinating. That, that you should study haters. <laughs> you should study, like, haters of celebrities, like someone who becomes, like, a Justin Bieber-type character, especially. Right. Someone who's a, a, a famous person who women just go... Like, if Justin Bieber goes anywhere in public, women will literally scream and faint right. and pass out, like, almost Elvis-like in some right. certain ways. You should study, like... What the reaction is to, man, I wonder if there's a way to study that. That's that's fascinating to me, uh, studying it, haters.
1: That's a good one. So let me tell you about my, are we still okay on time?
0: Yes, we're great. Okay. We have an hour.
1: Oh, great. Uh, so I have a brother who's lived in California for 30 years, uh, who, by the way, I, I think I'd sent you this by email, was a fighter, was a judo, Olympian judo fighter who played in the 19, played, who competed in the 1976 Olympics. So, and he used to always say by the way, before there was ever an MMA, I would always ask him if you were in a fight at a bar against some boxer or some uh, karate guy, who would win, which was kind of what started the whole MMA thing. Mm-hmm. And he used to always tell me, "Oh, I will destroy them because they might get one hit on me, but once I get them, That'll and once we us. go yeah. down on the ground, they're they're done." Uh, so, anyways, uh, so he 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 made a a lot a lot of money in the software industry in Southern California, and so he used he was the classic kind of peacocking guy. He owned three Ferraris, an Aston Martin Lagunda, and so on. Uh, and so we would we would play this game. Uh, to 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 my chagrin, he liked to play this game. We'd go to a nightclub. This is before I was. Married, in case my wife is listening. (laughs) Uh, No, but this was before we were married. Uh, We would walk into a bar, these fancy schmancy clubs, and he'd say, take your time and look around and find the most stunning, unattainable woman in this place. Now, take your time. So I'd go around, look around. I'd pick the girl who's not only the most beautiful, but the one who is clearly accompanied by a guy who looks like a brute, and they seem to be very intensely in love. So now it's, I've really raised the bar of him not being able to get her. Now, my brother is about five foot three, so he would, he, he's not tall and so on. But boy, is he carrying the, the big testicles of owning all those Ferraris. And so he, he'd say, okay, that's the girl you, 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 you want me to approach? Okay. So, the, so he'd wait like a shark, and then the, girl, uh, the guy would go to the bathroom, He'd approach the girl. He'd, he'd come up to about here on her. I mean, it was just incredible to watch. He'd come back to me and say, she'll call me tomorrow. I said, absolutely zero chance, David. It's not going to happen. Next morning, he'd say, God, come over here. He'd, at the time, we had the answering machines. answering machines. This is like maybe early 90s. Hi, David. It's Candy. I was, we met yes. Well, what got him Candy? It was the fact that he So owned- what would he say to them?
0: I don't know. I have three Ferraris. Come with me. <laughs> I like that you're I know you a Arabic have, accent. <laughs> I know you have a man, but he is stupid. He's big, but he does not have cars. It's something what did like she that. Say? Would,
1: well, look, the reality is that whenever we went anywhere in one of those cars, I just noticed anecdotally that the women would be all over the place.
0: Is that changing with time when people become more aware of how kind of peacocky and it becomes more of a, a, a cultural... Sort of a uh, uh, caricature. To right.
1: So I, I think what happens is that the, the product that we use for the peacocking might change. So, for example, mm. maybe in the cafe-sipping uh, uh, parties in Hollywood, it might be that I drive a Prius.
0: You, I was make, so happy you just said that. Right? So that
1: now makes me the, the, the top dog. This there, yes. is actually a paper uh, by a colleague of mine. I think it's called uh, Green to be Seen.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> which, so which is basically
1: a form of conspicuous consumption mm-hmm. based on being green rather than being in, in the big Hummer or whatever right. so the, the bottom line is that the signal itself will change but the need to signal as a form of a mating strategy is always there.
0: More progressive brownie points. More
1: progressive. I keep
0: points. track of the amount of Priuses that I catch throwing cigarettes out the window. I'm up to eight. <laughs> eight right. Priuses right. in my life right. I have observed throwing cigarettes out the window. I get fucking furious. <laughs> Because I know those fucks, I know what they 're doing right they drive a lot of them drive those things, not for the consumption, not not for gas low, keeping gas prices right. down they 're doing it because they want to appear green exactly and there are actually studies that look at how much are you
1: willing to pay extra for a green product, and oftentimes what people say attitudinally and then what they do, if it affects their dollar there 's a big incongruity. So you see the hypocrisy of people, right? Again, it's the posing, right? Mm. I mean, I want to appear as though I'm enlightened, progressive, I care about Mother Earth, and so
0: Well, most certainly. I mean, I'm a hunter, and I've experienced this weird thing where people who wear leather and eat meat get angry at you for hunting. And one of the reasons why they're angry at you for hunting is somehow or another what you're doing is uh, animal cruelty, that you don't have to do it. Why not go to a supermarket? This is an incredibly narrow-minded way of thinking. And I'm like, you have a leather couch. (laughs) Do you understand that the animal that you sit on on every day suffered unimaginable cruelty? The animal that I shot didn't even know I was there until I put an arrow through its heart. Do you
1: ever feel any... Gumption at, at doing it or no?
0: Yeah, no, de- definitely. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not. I, I eat meat. I like meat. Right. I've always eaten meat. Um, I work out a lot, and I find that I've I've, I've tried being a vegetarian once when I was competing um, back when I was fighting, and I didn't perform as well. I didn't have as much energy. It didn't feel as good. And granted, this, in all fairness, my knowledge of nutrition was far less than than it is now, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't have the best diet in the world, and I was also very young, but. Um, I, I, you know, animals like humans live a finite life and I think that they eat each other, they're, the world that they live in is un- un- unbelievably cruel and if it wasn't for getting killed by a hunter, it's not like they're going to live forever and become magic. Right. Okay, they They get killed by coyotes and mountain lions and, I like going into that world and acquiring meat. My goal is, at the end of 2014, all the meat I eat at home to only be from my hunting. No kidding. Yeah, because I feel like that's the most ethical way to so acquire meat. So where do you meat. do this? I go to different places. Okay. Like, uh, I've been, uh, I've only been f- hunting four times. I shot two deer, I shot a uh, a pig and a, and a, a wild pig, and uh, I shot a bear recently. Only animals that I eat, only animals that I want to eat, and my my freezer's filled with bear meat and venison and wow. yeah i mean that's what i that's what i try to eat i try to eat that first of all it's super healthy you know the uh, the animal you you know hasn't been shot up with antibiotics and hormones it's just a natural animal and again it's living its life in a wild way until i dip into the food chain and remove it but it's not a, it doesn't it's it feels good to accomplish it. Like the first time I did it, it was much more somber than it is now. Now it seems like I'm, uh, I'm I've sort of accepted what it is, and I'm, I'm, I'm happier after it's over. I don't, I don't have this sort of somber feeling. The first time I was, it was happiness, but also like wow, it just uh, I just took an animal's life, yeah. A big animal, 180 pound deer. Like this wow. is a lot of, there's a lot. Involved in this. This is this is real. But what about what's your position? We're talking about conspicuous consumption
1: and signaling. How about trophy hunting?
0: I don't like that okay, at all. Good. I have a real problem with that. Not only do I have a real problem with trophy hunting, I have a real problem with um, um, what they they're doing in Africa these days. This uh, high fence hunting. Yeah, it's horrible. It's very, but it's very strange. And here's the the contradiction. Here's where it gets weird. I had Louis Thoreau Do you know who he is? The documentarian from uh, England. The, on, not sure. Great guy and really fascinating and beautiful documentarian. He's just a, just really wonderful documentaries. And uh, he had uh, this one where he went to this African hunting camp for several weeks and stayed there and tried to really understand what it was all about and interviewed all these people. And a lot of them were just despicable. They're just these real hickey people. Like yeah, I'm just gonna I'm, I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna try to get the big five. I'm gonna get a rhino. I'm gonna get an elephant. <laughs> and all they want to do is like spend money and bring home tusks and horns and all this different shit it's pretty gross cuz it's just they're killing to acquire trophies and what what they're doing is they're killing inside these high fences where these animals it's not like you're out I have no there chance, yeah. yeah you're going to and it's not to say that I'm opposed to high fence hunting because i think if you're hunting like deer or an animal that you're just going to eat it's essentially uh, like, not that much different than going to a lake that's been stocked. Right. You know, if you're going to a lake and they stock the lake with trout to ensure that there's fish to fish, it, those fish are not going to get out of that lake and fly to Nebraska, right? Mm. That's where they live. They're stuck there. And I don't think there's any difference between that and like these high fence hunting operations in Texas, which I don't have any problem with at all. They have like these thousand acre, and one of them I know of is 14,000 acres, and they, they keep deer on it. And why do they have the fences up? Well, to keep poachers out, to right. keep, to, and they also. So they make a living off of uh, guiding people to hunt these animals. And for them, it's like the ethical um, uh, acquiring of of your own meat. And it's venison. It's very delicious. It tastes good. It's good for you. It's very healthy meat. I don't have a problem with that. What the African thing is so confusing because... There was a woman recently um, that was on the news uh, this this past week. She was 19 years old. She went to Africa and took all these photos with her that, with a lion that she killed.
1: I might have shared
0: that on my so- – but that wasn't a week ago. I did one. You did recently, but it was yeah. a different one. Oh, it was a different yeah, one. Okay. I, saw, I went, I've followed all your stuff. I've oh, been paying attention you. for a while. Um, but um, you had you, – you said it's disgusting. Oh. So she was holding the mouth exactly, of a lion open. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's dark. There's something dark about that, man. I mean, if you're not going to eat that animal, I mean... I don't. I have a friend who's going lion hunting in the wild. He's a bow hunter. His name's Cameron Haynes. He's going to eat a lion, though. Wow. He's going to go over there. He's going to hunt it in the in in not in a high fence. He's going to Zimbabwe in the actual jungle. He's going to hunt a lion and he's going to eat it. You know, he's fucking
1: crazy to 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 collect salivary assays from these types of guys pre pre kill Mm -hmm. post kill.
0: Well, he's got plenty of testosterone (laughs) before and after. But I I guarantee you that it jumps up when he uh, he shoots it. He's the one who took me bear hunting. Wow. Yeah, he's uh, he's probably one of the most famous bow hunters in America today. Probably in the world, actually. He's a legit bow hunter. I mean, he makes his living doing that, and he's uh, very famous because of it. Very ethical, though. He does not shoot anything he does not eat. Right. Everything he shoots, he eats. And I think that's where... Um, that's where I have an issue with this, this this Africa thing. But where it gets weird is that those animals, many of them were on the verge of extinction, but now they are, they're in very high numbers. The reason being is that they're in these high-fence operations, so it's such a catch-22. Right. On one hand, they were on the verge of extinction, mm-hmm. and on another hand, now they have these high populations and they're super healthy, but they only exist as a commodity to be hunted down I mean, and the way they're doing it, I was like, there's a water hole and there's like a hundred animals in front of the water hole. And these people just sit there and and they just shoot one. They go, look what I did on my hunt. <laughs> like, is that even a hunt? Right. You're in a park. Yeah. I mean, you're in a fenced in, like, you know, it's someone's yard. Yeah, you're not it,
1: tracking or anything. They're like yeah. pets.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's you're not only not tracking, the, those animals, they're never going to leave and go a hundred miles away to a different place and then, you know, go across a river to, you know, it's, mule deer they they discovered that mule deer in America this is a really recent discovery they had no idea how far they migrate but they migrate as much as 150 miles wow. in a year 150 miles is a lot of walking man for a deer that's like here to fucking san diego yeah. for a deer you know and they're just starting to understand their migratory patterns wow. and that's but that's a wild animal now if you that's what i consider fair chase right. you go out hunting you find a mule deer that's walking 150 miles you figure out where they're going to be and you know and then stalk them and get into a good position and and shoot them and eat them. It's about as fair and ethical a way as you can acquire your own meat. If you're going all the way to Africa and you're not even going to eat that animal and you're just going to like stuff it and stick it on your wall to let everybody know how how billy badass you are, that's weird, man. That's I hear it's, you. it's a weird aspect of human beings that we would even consider that to be a form of recreation, you know. And people go, well, hey, it's totally legal. And, well, hey, there's nothing. You know, they, the, the money goes to conservation. And I guess it does, in a way. I guess it does. It does go to keep these animals alive so they can keep killing them. Right. It's weird. It's very weird. So are you also a paleo guy? Well, you know what? That whole paleo thing. I don't like that term, paleo, because the term has been debunked by science. Right. When you talked about, like, what people did or did not eat, um, I think that natural foods are more easily digestible. I try to stay away from bread as much as possible. Although I do, I have uh, started eating more sprouted bread recently, like Ezekiel type Mm. bread. I feel like my body digests that more easily. Mm. I think it's a little healthier. I, I keep away from white flour and pastas and things along those lines. And I try to avoid processed foods as okay. much as possible and sugar as much as possible. So in that sense, yeah, I eat a lot of vegetables. I eat a lot of protein, animal yeah. protein, fish and things along those lines. But I th- I just think that I'm just real – I noticed because I work out so much and because I, uh, I do um, – Athletics, where you sort of measure your progress, you know, whether it's uh, my workout routines, like strength and conditioning routines, or martial arts, I can kind of see when I'm on and when I'm off, and I can anecdotally or directly correlate that between my to my diet. Mm. And I find that when I take supplements and I make sure that I have plenty of vitamins and plenty of green, leafy vegetables, that's one of the most important ones, I think, right. and healthy proteins. So in that sense, I, I eat along the lines that a lot of those paleo guys eat.
1: Right. You know, I... When I used to be a very competitive soccer player, I was grossly underweight my whole life. I mean, 125, 130 pounds, 4% body fat. Just from running all the time? Running all the time, training. I even ran some marathons. The day that I stopped training was this sort of pernicious and insidious weight gain where it wasn't sort of you saw me one, one year I was 125 and the next year I was eight. It was always four, five, eight pounds a year. And then one day, eight, nine years later, I get on the scale and I'm tipping 200. And the most I got up is 252. I'm five foot six. <gasps>
0: 252, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: whoa, uh, you're and a heavyweight. Exactly. Uh, and, and now I've lost about 25, 30 pounds, but still even now, I mean, I'm over 200 pounds. And one of the things that I've that I've been doing is, uh, eating, as you said, a lot of vegetables and a lot of protein, staying away from all the starchy stuff. And I'm using, uh, you know, myfitnesspal.com? Do you know this thing, this calorie counting program? No, it's it's part of this whole quantify yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, So basically my, I have to give credit to my wife. She, she literally counts every single calorie that goes into my body. I have to basically have 1400 calories net a day. Uh, Including exercise and so on. So as long as I hit fourteen hundred calories net that day, and I've lost so far twenty five pounds in maybe three months.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's a great number. Twenty five pounds in three months is really healthy. I mean, now it's it's not not too fast, too. That's good. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now it's getting a bit rough. I I can't seem to break the next sort of hump. What do you do for exercise? So I'm I'm a cardio guy. So Mm -hmm. maybe I don't know. Maybe you'll you'll guide me in better ways. Uh, So I just do tons of cardio. So it could be I run on the treadmill or I do stationary bike or I do elliptical. I usually try to average between 45 minutes to an hour. But cardio is
0: great. No no doubt about it. And you know, there's nothing better than having a good gas tank and having a healthy heart. Right. But um, one of the things that burns calories the most is muscle. Yeah. And the more muscle that you can put on your body, the stronger you can make yourself. Uh, it's kind of strange, but you get leaner.
1: Yeah, your metabolism goes mm-hmm. up, so yeah. Yeah.
0: And I just find I just feel better when I'm stronger. You know, my body works better. Right. I like the way it feels better. And I think that I can eat more. Right. You know, I, I, I'm a pig. Right. I like eating. <laughs> right. But I'm yeah. pretty lean for someone who eats as much as I eat. Like, if you ever seen me eat? People freak out. Like, especially, like, after comedy shows, I'll do, like, two shows in a night. And I'll have two entrees and a salad and right. an appetizer. Right. Like, to the point where waitresses think I'm joking. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, I'm serious. I'm, I'm going to eat all that, too. Right. Wow. I eat a lot of food, but, um, and I love it. So the way I make sure that I stay lean is I do a lot of exercise right. and, and a lot of weightlifting. I think that weightlifting – and by weightlifting, I'm not doing like a lot of the traditional stuff like bench pressing. Most of the stuff I do is full-body exercises, right. kettlebells, things along those lines. But when I do that, all that intense strain, uh, that's not available through cardio. Through cardio, you can do sprinting and you right. can really get your heart rate up and really get exhausted. You certainly burn off a lot of calories. But that intense strain of, right. of fucking, you know, that's what makes bone density. That's what makes your know, your tendons and your tendons stronger, muscle density strong, more thick. And I think that also helps your calorie consumption. Oh, cool.
1: Speaking of com- comedians, I just because very organic what's going on. I just hired a postdoc whose claim to fame so far, until he gets into my research program, was he was studying the evolutionary roots of humor.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And so what he basically looked at is humor as a sexually selected trait as a proxy for intelligence. And so with, with his former doctoral supervisor, who's a well-known evolutionary psychologist, they would go into comedy clubs and uh, rate people's uh, impressions of how funny the comedian is and then would administer IQ tests to them. And it turns out that funnier people are actually smarter people. And so when women say, uh, you know, I love, you know, they always say, I want a guy with a sense of humor. I want a guy who makes me laugh. What they're effectively saying as as a proxy measure is I want a guy who's intelligent because intelligence is a heritable trait
0: interesting but i bet that's wrong (laughs) here's why i bet that's wrong i don't my my favorite comedian of all time is my friend joey diaz i think he's the funniest guy that's ever lived and uh he is a very smart guy as far as like street smarts and wisdom and he knows a lot about life if you gave him a fucking iq test though he might barely beat a chimp right so i think what you're basically saying is that IQ might
1: not be the way to yes. measure intelligence mm-hmm. but what but you are admitting that he is probably very intelligent Oh he's um, most certainly well then, very intelligent So then that's that's supporting the he general did, theory y-
0: Oh it's the general yeah. theories on I yeah. just think that IQ intelligence doesn't measure, measure be, social yeah. intelligence Fair enough yeah He's very socially intelligent yeah. like he spots like he's a predator in some ways like he spots like the weakness a person has and he's like, look at this motherfucker with his goofy, you know, he'll find yeah, out yeah, the yeah. one thing about you. Oh, yeah, that's not what you're thinking. You know, he'll like, right. he'll find the one thing that, you know, you're trying to pretend you're not, but you truly are. And it, it'll like illuminate itself, right. like glowing. Ding. Here, this guy's actually uh, this. Right. He's actually a that. He's well, lying about this. Most certainly. You know, they, there's
1: a study that was done with CEOs. And the number one thing that they all had in common, other than. On average, being taller than the norm, CEOs it, c- are
0: taller than the norm. Yeah,
1: they're I th- fascinating. They're, I think, six foot two or some. Some of them I can't remember exactly the number. Uh, is that they had very high social intelligence?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it I mean, makes sense, right? If you're an operating officer, you're you're trying to keep everybody in line. Use a lot of social intelligence exactly. required to do that. To manage a giant group of people and keep everybody happy, and you know, and foster morale, yeah. and yeah, there's a lot involved in that. Here's
1: an interesting one. Uh, remember earlier we were talking about uh, you know, how these uh, Hollywood types are lying to themselves in the privacy of their bedrooms? They're, yeah, I'm glad
0: they, we brought that back up again. There's more to talk about there. Yeah,
1: so I'm, you're going to like this one. So I've often wondered whether they believe the hype that they say. In other words, when mm-hmm. somebody is posing in this way, do, you, do they truly kind of internalize this or not? There's a fantastic evolutionary theory that looks at the evolutionary roots of self-deception. In other words, wh- why is it that we are so good at self-deceiving ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by a guy named, by the name of Robert Trivers, phenomenal evolutionary biologist. And he proposed a theory that I think is brilliant in its simplicity. And then what I usually do is to demonstrate the phenomenon, I go to a television show like Seinfeld to, to, to find a manifestation of that phenomenon, which I'll talk about in a sec. So he says that one of the biggest dangers that we face as, as humans is to navigate all of these social threats in our environment, right? So I'm trying to manipulate you while you're trying to read me to see my manipulative intent. That's called Machiavellian intelligence or social mm-hmm. intelligence. So one of the ways that I could fool you without you picking up that I am fooling you is if any visual cue in my in my face that would signal that I am lying I would shut it off the way you because then you can't read that right, mm. right. and the way you do that is by deceiving yourself in other words if you understand what I'm saying ah
0: yes okay. so I yeah. want to lie to
1: you mm-hmm. I want to deceive you I want to make you do a but you're going to be looking at me to see whether there is any f- visual signals that shows that i'm lying if i could suppress those by first lying to myself then you can't pick up that i'm lying mm. so then so there's a show on seinfeld so i said you know how can i demonstrate this to make it sort of more sexy in my book so there's a show on seinfeld where george costanza who is kind of a duplicitous devious guy uh, is, is trying to teach jerry how to be a better liar And one day, as he's about to leave his apartment, he looks at him and says, Remember, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. And I said, that's it. That's exactly the evolutionary roots of self-deception, right? So,
0: you see, evolutionary theory is everywhere, man. It explains everything. I certainly think you're correct in that. And I think that there's definitely something there. But I can also offer some unique insight uh, of, to the celebrity thing Shoot. and what it, what it is because I've, I've been a part of it. And I've also experienced it myself. I've experienced my own self-deception or my own ego swelling, like, uh, in an unnatural way. It's because of the environment that you're constantly in and the data that you're getting. The, the data that you're getting if you're a star. Like, I've seen... Now, I'm a nice person, but I've seen people get shows and become these fucking ruthless dictators, like people that have sitcoms or shows that revolve entirely around them. Like like a, you know, not Seinfeld. He's supposedly a very nice guy, but like uh, there's this famous story of Brett Butler who's from that show Grace Under Fire about Mm. what a ruthless monster she became when she was on the show. Granted, substance abuse was in there as well. Which I think may also, you know, not just because, uh, of the fact that she probably had addictive tendencies to begin with. Uh, A lot of comedians tend to be impulsive and a lot of them tend to have addiction issues as well. I'm sure that played into it as well, but also this, the pressure of being the one, the pressure of being this one person where when Brett Butler shows up on the set, everyone has a coffee for there's a script. Can we get anything? Brett, they're all treading lightly. You know, they're all like worried constantly that she's going to be upset at them. So their data, the data that a person like a Brett Butler or some, star has, is that they are special. That's all the data they're getting. The the, the data that someone who has you know, someone who's not attractive they're they're the only data, like a lot of data that comes from uh, a person who is not physically attractive is like, well I found out that I can get people to like me if I make them laugh. Right. So I'm gonna develop a good sense of humor because my nose isn't getting any smaller, my ears aren't getting any littler, I'm not getting any taller, yeah. I'm, I'm fucking not losing any weight. So let me just let me just become funny, and then you know you see a lot of f- funny guys that are my friends that are not good looking at all, but have beautiful girlfriends. Like what is that from? Well, they figured out the one thing that they do have that they can find right. that's attractive. The data that these actors and these people that get that are famous, they're constantly getting love and they're getting love from people that don't know them. They only know their work. They only know this thing that they've pretended to be in a movie where they were a superhero or in this thing where they were a doctor or in that show where they were, you know, they always had the right answer and they were on top of things. How many people that we've seen in movies that we thought were like really smart, intelligent people, then you see them in an interview and you go, oh, he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> He's an idiot who's playing a role. Right. Their their data that they get is completely unnatural. That environment where you for whatever reason they decide that you're gonna be the guy, they put you in this thing, they project you on a screen that's sixty feet wide. Every time you talk, the words that come out of your mouth were carefully constructed by a team of writers and they that labored over those words for weeks and weeks. There's music playing I mean, exactly. it's 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 amazing. Exactly. So that environment is so completely unnatural. The data that they get because of that is so unnatural. When Brad Pitt shows up at an, uh, some awards party or something like that, and he goes down the red carpet, and people fucking go bananas and scream, he handles it remarkably well for someone who's in that scenario because right. that is a completely unnatural yeah. scenario and must be insanely difficult to maintain objectivity in, that's, in that situation. So that has to be taken into account. Just the data that those people sure. get is so different from the data that a guy who is uh, working at a camera shop gets. A guy that's a normal person in normal life. That The data that they get is, when they interact with people, people judge them based on right. their appearance, how they talk, what their background is. They start communicating, they gather up data. When you see Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt, like you automatically like them. You automatically have all this attached to them. And that's a totally unnatural world to live in.
1: There is actually some studies that have looked at why is it that people love celebrities so much. And the argument is that it's because it's tricking our ancestral brain, mm. right? You're coming into my television uh, screen every day on, on news radio I actually, you now become part of my, what's called my, you know what Dunbar number is? Mm-hmm. Right? 150,
0: 150 people. 150,
1: yeah. Very nice. So you, you know, Joe Rogan, I know this guy. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I remember when my kid was born, Joe Rogan, Joe, you know, Joe, I know Joe Rogan. And so I think what ends up happening is that since we obviously didn't evolve in an environment where there were televisions, but... I now feel so intimately connected to you, Mm -hmm. that barrier is removed.
0: Yeah. It gets even weirder when you do something like this, like podcasts, Uh. because this is even more intimate because we're in people's ears. We're in earbuds. I'm inside your head. I'm talking to you right now. Maybe you're on a treadmill. Maybe you're on a plane. (laughs) Maybe you're sitting on the subway. Buy my books. (laughs) Yeah. Buy God's God's books. (laughs) Uh, remember those subliminal things? Did those work? Those yeah. things like buy popcorn. Remember those things yeah, they used yeah, to those, have? Yeah. They
1: flash in the movie. That famous, sort of popcorn and yeah. Coke. Uh, apparently, the, the I, I don't know the exact story, but I think apparently the company that uh, uh, commissioned that study uh, maybe did some massaging with a the fuckery. data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had a group of undergraduate students do a similar project in one of my courses, what they found is that if you put, let's say, buy Crush or buy Big Mac, it's not specifically the desire to buy that product that increased, but rather your hunger and your thirst increased. Right. You know what I mean? So it didn't increase your likelihood of saying, yes, I'd like to buy a Big Mac. But when they were asked post the subliminal thing, are you hungry? Then the subliminal cue would affect their hunger and their thirst, but not to the specific product. Oh. So the, so the, the evidence is equivocal.
0: So there's a little something in there. There's something that, a little. Th- like yeah. if you see someone eating a piece of cake on TV and it looks awesome, you do say, oh, I like that. Yeah, right. And that's real. Yeah, right? exactly. So that is kind of a subliminal message or is that not subliminal? Well, it's not because, subliminal because it's yeah. conscious. It's, right. It has to be below my
1: my conscious awareness for it to be subliminal.
0: Do you remember those things that they used to sell? I don't think they have them anymore, but they used to be um, CDs or audio tapes, and you would hear like the sound of the ocean or something yeah. like that, but then behind <laughs> well, it was to supposedly a message.
1: Yeah, For a of smoking and so yeah. on. Yeah. Well, I don't know if those work because I don't think they're on the
0: market anymore. <laughs> I no. I think the market has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were they were quite popular for a while. Right. You, you hear like, shh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And somewhere in there apparently was like, lose weight, okay. stop eating Cheetos. Right.
1: Well, isn't that – doesn't Scientology have a similar thing with the, getting the clear state or something? Yes,
0: Wait. yes. <laughs> I, I had a neighbor who was – poor bastard. There was a piece of property that he wanted to buy, and I found out he was a t- Scientologist because of this conversation. We, he wanted to buy this piece of property, and I said, yeah, this is right – it was right next to his house. I said, it would be – uh Would you build on it? He was like, "Well, you know what? I don't. I can't even buy right now because my wife is about to go clear." And I go, "What does that mean? You know, I didn't know what it meant." And he goes, "Well, you know, we're Scientologists. So and then so, uh, you know, I tried to just be as." objective as possible and kind. I started started asking him, like, what does that mean? He was telling me that she will no longer be influenced by any outside stimuli, any outside influence, any outside suggestions, and that she will be able to go through this world without being affected by negative anything. Anybody yelling at her, anybody insulting her, they will no longer get in there. But it costs (laughs) $50,000. That's
1: it. that's, That's the ringer.
0: And then I remember I was going, like, what is this, what happens? And he was explaining that she goes through the ceremony. I'm like, that costs 50 grand. Why Man. does it cost 50 grand? I like, I don't know. It's just, uh, the, you know, it's, it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking poor bastard.
1: Now, why is it that so many since you're in that industry, why is it that it is particularly accepted within the Hollywood crowd? Good question.
0: I've only met a few. I've only met a few uh, legit Scientologists. And one thing that they radiate is this weird sort of positive energy, this alien, artificial, positive energy that's very difficult to put your finger on. Like, hey, Dad, nice to meet you, man. That's amazing. (laughs) So you're doing um, evolutionary psychology as it applies to marketing, Amazing stuff. I like it a lot. Like, there's something. It's not like a genuine enthusiasm. Right. It's this right. weird extra level. Right. That's not. But it's. It's almost like you, you want to follow. I want to see how long you can keep this up. <laughs> I want to follow you all day. I want to know when the crash is coming. You know, I'm pretty sure that if I followed you around, I'm just guessing, but based on our two-hour and a half conversation, that if I followed you around, you're pretty much like this all the time. Pretty this much. is you. Yeah. But when you're talking to a Scientologist, you fucking know that this is going to end. Right. That you you can't keep this up, man. It's like if a guy's putting on a fake English accent. I'm talking all day like this. It's a an important time. We got to know that I can't do this forever. You know, and this is something that they're doing when they've got this amazing stuff, Gad. I right, love it. Right. Love what you're doing. Right. Like, like, man, you're going to hit the rocks, bro. You're going right. to crash. Something's right. going to go wrong. But they're... Um, their centers that they have in L.A., one of the most interesting ones is they have this anti-psychiatry, anti-psychiatry right. center. Psychiatry kills. And they have this big billboard where a guy's got, like, shock, electric shock therapy shit on his head. He's h- screaming in agony. And what you don't realize when you go to that is that it's a Scientology front. I mean, you go in there and they, they, you know, they get you hooked on Dianetics. Wow. And yeah. you
1: know, The story of this guy is quite...
0: Oh, yeah. Extraordinary, right? He's amazing. He's amazing. Amazingly bad, too. Amazingly bad writer. And the fact that he openly spoke about creating your own religion. That if you want to have real power and real money, you need to make your own religion. And then made his own religion. And his books are fucking atrocious. His movie, Battlefield Earth, have you ever seen the John Travolta movie? No. Oh, my God. We were talking about it last week. Uh, My friend Eliza Schlesinger and I were laughing about it. Um, It's a... Insanely bad movie With John Travolta Who's He's like a most, monster mm-hmm, Kind of yeah. Giant alien yeah, yeah. guy And it's him And um What's the fucking dude's name With the lazy eye The black guy uh, Forrest Whitaker Oh Forrest Whitaker Whitaker's yeah. in it too He's, He's also a Scientologist he, I don't think he's a Scientologist, okay. but he's he's an alien the uh, in this movie. You'd be amazed at how many Scientologists there are, right? W- of like high level people, and you start like looking like weird ones, like Beck the singer. Beck is a Scientologist. Sound- yeah, okay. Juliette Lewis is like as you go like down the the list of people that are actual Scientologists. Oh. It's pretty it's pretty extensive. I think what it provides them is a scaffolding um, for. I think Hollywood and the idea of being, and most notably actors, right. because acting itself is one of the most unstable professions. Right. You have to be chosen. Because, I mean, what you do is based entirely on the merits of your work. What you do is based on the, the entirely on your education, your qualifications, your and, you, and the data that you've provided and the, the, the writing that you've done based on that data. It's all really rock solid stuff. Right. It's all right in front of you, despite the fact that the ideologues, you know. Right attack you and the fucking politically correct knuckleheads will go after you. What you're doing is, it's all based on the merits of your work. What an actor is doing is trying so desperately to get other people to accept them and choose them. Right. And it's very weird. It's Mm ephemeral. It's it's fleeting. It's not just fleeting. It's it's so weird that they don't have their own. It's very rare that you talk to actors and they have their own opinions. It's like what they have is this sort of conglomeration of opinions that they've sort of subscribed to because they believe that this is going to ingratiate them with the over lords of hollywood right. so everyone is goddamn politically correct everyone's driving a fucking prius everyone's voting democrat right. you know everyone is wearing pink ribbons when it's the appropriate time because it's breast cancer awareness uh hashtag bring our girls home mm-hmm. you know yeah. the oh, yeah. <laughs> hashtag yes all women you better fucking have that shit you better have right. a good quote about it right hashtag <laughs> hashtag go fuck yourself right. so they all um they all get a they become a part of this sort of really unstable and to be to be fam- fair to someone who wants to be an actor in the first place oftentimes you're incredibly unstable at fair. first uh, you know the the original you before you get to Hollywood like why do you want to be an actor because you want to be super special not just regular special you want to be you want to be the guy
1: I actually wanted to ask you about this because my theory is that very few actors want to be actors because of the love of the craft. I mean, yes, there's Al Pacino mm-hmm. and Robert De Niro who right. who really do this because you know they're just they're real artists. But most people are really looking for the extrinsic perks, right? It's really cool for me to walk around and people throwing themselves off balconies mm-hmm. when I when I make an appearance, right? Yeah, and to make tons of so is would would you agree that that's true I mean is that yeah, yeah okay. it's a sickness it's, you, you
0: know the, the, there's a lot of people they see like a guy like a, go back to Brad Pitt for instance they see the love that Brad Pitt gets they want to be like him and what's the best way to be like him to do what he does and so what does he do? We well, he acts. How hard is that? It's just pretending. I'm going to yeah. get into acting. Yeah. You know, they just, they want, they have a hole in their soul they need to fill up with other people's attention. And almost all of them that are, like, really extremely successful had some fucking wacky childhood. Right. Me, me personally, I had a very bad childhood. It was, was not good, you know. And because of that bad child, it wasn't the worst. I have friends that have way worse childhoods. But it was enough to create a deficit that I had this uh, burning desire to fill in to show that I wasn't a loser, Right. You know, that it wasn't, it wasn't this, this child who is ignored and, you know, and treated like shit that I wasn't that, that it, I'll show you, you know, and that I'll show you is what sort of leads by to getting fame by becoming mm-hmm. okay. or being great at athletics. I mean, that's right. what initially led me to fighting. That's what initially led me to comedy. It wasn't as much. I'll get fame is I'll show you like right. I'm going to get great at something. Right. And then somewhere along the line, I started acting. It was, But that was completely by accident. They, I never. Oh, really? Yeah, I never taken any acting like classes or anything like that. I just got a development deal because of stand up comedy, and the, I I took a handful of private one on one acting classes with a crazy person. Oh, this crazy lady was constantly trying to get me to, if I did get a show, to cast her as my mother and like <laughs> working her way in. Oh, so gross. She, oh, the conversations that I had with this lady were so brutal, and it sort of like that was one of the first interactions that I had ever had with someone who has is deep, deep in the acting world and right. the business. And I got to be around some of these people that were also taking her classes. I'm like, you people are fucking gross. Right, right. There's something gross about the just the disingenuous behavior. Yeah. yeah. But I again, as we said, I think it all boils down to like what is that world?
1: So are many of your personal friends in the industry or are they more in fighting or, or?
0: most of them are comedians all most comedians, of my good okay. friends are stand-up okay. comics because stand-up comics is like and the other ones are martial artists those okay. those two worlds are they're as solid as you can get like yeah. if you're not funny no one you're laughs out. if you don't know how to fight you're gonna get your ass kicked the, the, if you you know what i mean even if you don't know if you don't know jujitsu someone's gonna strangle you yeah. if you you know these are all rock solid worlds right. there's no no getting around them where things get weird and airy-fairy is when you're pretending to be a superhero, you know, or you're right. pretending to be a – I just think it's uh, it's an unnatural position to be in. Right. And for human beings, as you you were saying, we have this evolutionary – trait where we look at successful behavior and we want to emulate it. Right. Well if you find the guy who's the head of the tribe, who's got the you know, the scars and the wisdom, that's the the guy that you want to pay attention to because you can learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. And he, he shows wisdom. You can emulate his behavior and you can become successful. Well when someone is on TV and, or in a movie theater and their head's 60 feet tall and they're, everything they're saying is perfect, you want to be them. You, know, you want to follow them. You want to worship them yeah. because they seem to be exhibiting this uh, evolutionary thing. And I also think that the media itself, whether it's music or whether it's movies and television, there's an inescapable quality to being on film that is, is, is unavoidable in some very strange way right. in that your body's not designed to absorb it. Your body is not designed to absorb movies. Your body is designed to absorb the, the wisdom of the natural world, like the right. wisdom of, you know, that guy got bitten by a tiger. Stay out of the tall grass. Right. You know, it's real fucking simple. You know, like, oh, he went in the river and he drowned. Oh, don't go in the river. You know, all these lessons we learn from the natural world, all these things that we see that exist in the material, you know, world that's in front of us. But when this world has all of a sudden been changed and now you're, you're looking at dragons and you're looking at, you know, space. Spaceships and fucking lightning bolts and all these things that are taking place on a screen that aren't real. The whole thing gets very squirrely in our minds. We don't know what to do with it.
1: Cool. So do you ever get blowbacks? We're talking about blowback about being. Do you get blowback from people in the industry for speaking
0: so critically of the Hollywood types? They're scared. Especially actors, terrified to have an opinion on anything. They, they, if they get opinion on someone shitting on actors, because the problem is, then it would be exposed. People would start examining. Well, let's examine your behavior. Let's examine what actors really. Are. Let's examine some of the things you said. Like, oh, they're probably getting mad. Fuck him. But I'm not going to say it. You know, so you won't get actors on this show. Oh, I've had actors on the show. Okay. There's not all actors. Right. It's like saying, I mean, all a, a lot of comedians are fucked up, but it's not all comedians. Right. A lot of fighters are fucked up, but not all of them. I mean, there's a lot of actors that are really nice. I mean, right. I've done some like, uh, I've done movies with people like Rosario Dawson, who's beautiful and yeah. famous. She's about as nice and normal as you're ever going to be around. Nice. She's so cool. Like, when you're around her, she, you would never believe in a million years that she's famous. She seems completely unaffected by whatever mechanism. I don't know how she and got not to... fake modesty. No, okay. she's totally normal. Okay. I, I wish I had a video of her playing with my daughter when my daughter was two. It was hilarious. Right. She was grabbing her and, like, stuffing her whole hand in her mouth. My daughter would scream laughing and she kept doing it again it was so funny she's really funny my daughter was crying at the monster outside oh there. the werewolf yeah <laughs> sorry man i should have warned you <laughs> i didn't know you're gonna bring kids yeah, yeah werewolf's your... a motherfucker i think, scary <laughs> yeah. no there's a lot of nice people that are actors like there's a lot of nice people i'm sure that do all sorts yeah. of things i know a lot of dudes that are in special forces that are nice as hell right and they've killed folks you know it's like there's a lot of nice people out
1: there. I got, uh, last year when we came to California, we come here every year to vacation. I, I don't know if you knew. This uh, is the wrong time. Why don't I, you come I, in the winter, I know, man? I know, I know, I know. You live in Montreal. I was at UC Irvine for a couple of years and then had headed back to Montreal and. the I've been trying to get back to California Yeah, since. that winter's
0: a motherfucker yeah, up there. Is, is, Woo! You've been to Montreal? Oh, yeah, many yeah, times, yeah. yeah. Well, Georges St-Pierre, I guess. Right? Yeah, well, I grew up in Boston, and I used ah, to do comedy yeah. at the Montreal Comedy Festival every year. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Which is happening soon, I guess. Yes, yeah. every summer. I used to go, I started going up there in, I think, 92. So, oh,
1: cool. So you were saying about the special forces. So we, you know, we always hang out at one of the beaches. We meet people, we chat, you know, we're very friendly. And so I met a, who's, he's become now a very good friend, a FBI special agent whose job it is to tailgate all of these Muslim extremists around UC Irvine area
0: whoa tailgate uh, them
1: well yeah i mean, i hope okay. he's not going to be upset that i said this Well, i have well, said no it so, years you know uh so yeah so uh so he's 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 told me some unbelievable stories of and and he he too i mean was an FBI agent who's been under a lot of pressure to do the politically correct thing right as you probably know that they're not supposed to say Islamic extremists or Islam Mm -hmm. or this or that and so when he hears me in some of my discourse he finds it quite liberating because here's a guy who is sort of whose job it is to protect us from some of these dangers who faces some of the politically correct Shackles that we've been talking about.
0: Well, our mutual, our mutual friend Sam Harris, yes, has had a, an incredible amount of blowback in his honest and objective assessment of Muslim excre- extreme. Incredible the Muslim extremists that he's uh, documented that he has put on his blog. Like he had this thing where he was saying, like, um, there's there's a, there's a video of this guy um, who's speaking. Um, I forget what country he's in, but he's speaking in English to this group of uh, Islamic people. And he's talking about the differences between what people think of him as radical Islam and what is just Islam. Right. And he starts talking about, he goes, how many of you believe in the works of the Quran, in the word of the Quran, and, and, and how many of you follow it? And they all like raise their hand. How many of you believe that, the word of God is the best way to deal with homosexuals and that what, whatever the Quran says, whether they, it says they should be stoned to death, that this is the word of God, and, this is the, and they all raise their hand. And like he, he goes into this thing about how many of you think that women should be silent and that they should you know, should listen to their man because this is what God has said, and they all raise their hand. And he's like, see, this is, this is not radical Islam. This is just Islam. Right. So all these people that say, oh, they're so radical, they're radical Islam. And like, he doesn't even realize right. that he's a d- demonstrating radical Islam. Exactly. He's demonstrating. Sam Harris got so much fucking hate just for putting this video up. Right. I saw all these people, oh, I see what you're doing, shielding your his Islamophobic with one person and your Islamophobia. with. And
1: what's astonishing is that you know he, he is a true liberal. Yes. And yet he is painted to be some... Hate monger.
0: Well, he so, also gets painted that way because it's perceived that he supports war because he wants to true. to suppress this aspect of yeah. of humanity. And why is it? Well, it's because it's not over here yet. If it was over here and it was invading, yeah. and you were getting suicide bombs on a daily basis, right. you would have a real issue with it too.
1: I'll tell you a great story uh, along those lines. A woman approached me, if, uh, who was who used to be a friend. Now she no longer is a friend. Mm. Uh, you'll know by the end of the story why. She said, you know, you know a lot about this issue, God. You grew up in the region. Uh, what is the position on uh, Islam regarding Jews? Okay. Well, I mean, we escaped Lebanon because we were going to be executed. Okay? By It wasn't by the Amish. Okay? Right. Uh, so I said, you know what? Rather than kind of go into a whole treatise, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you a montage of imams from around the world. So this is not culture specific. There's an Indonesian imam, a Malaysian, Kuwaiti, Yemeni. So these are at their sermons. This is at the mosque where they are preaching what should be done to the Jews. And one of the particular uh, imams was showing images of the Nazis bulldozing. Uh, skeletons into the ditches. And he was lamenting to God, Why, God, wouldn't, didn't you give us the pleasure of exterminating those Jewish rats? Why do you hate us so much? Those Jewish rats? Some version of that, right? So, I mean, it was even by that standard, it was diabolical. So I, I share with her the link and I, make, I made absolutely no interpretations, right? I wasn't saying it's good, it's bad. I just shared the link. Now, she's a Jewish woman whose grandparents, I can't remember on which side, had had suffered in the Holocaust. Her response back to me, well, in you sharing this video, you're exhibiting the same extremism. So so when your moral compass is so broken that the guy who shares a video in response to a question that you asked me is no different than the people who are generating the content in the video,
0: we're doomed. We need a better term for polit- political correctness. <laughs> Because that's even more extreme than political correctness. This denial of reality based on your own ideology. And that's what it is. It's just this crazy sickness that people who consider themselves intelligent, intellectual, progressive, open-minded, these are the people that exhibit this ridiculous trait. Because I think they just have this instinct
1: that to criticize an other is gauche, is wrong. Especially when that other
0: is their religious views. But is that true? Because they have no problem criticizing the hick Republican senator who believes in creationism and wants to teach it in school. They'll fucking hate to the end of time about that fool. That's true. But if it's some imam who thinks that, you know, women should cover themselves up like they look like Jabba the Hutt or what is it? Was it Boba Fett? Whichever one. Whatever it is. Please direct your hate mail to Joe Rogan. Come it, Bring it on, <laughs> bitches. Uh, it's silliness. It's, and my silliness is not – I almost have more disdain for the people that are progressive that have an issue with someone criticizing this than I do the people that were brainwashed and, and ingrained and t- with this religion because – these the people that are supposedly intellectuals or supposedly responsible for guiding the thought of the young people right. the people that are supposed to be the the folks that are the, the, the ones that are the curators of these ideas, the ones that are the ones who are teaching children in school, these are, these are the wise ones who are professionally right. intelligent. You're supposed to be professionally right. objective, professionally wise. And you have this ridiculous notion because of the environment that we live in where this po- politically correct, whatever you want to call it. Ideology has has gotten so infected. It's such a, a bizarre computer virus of the mind. Well, the king of these
1: these guys, although it has nothing to do with Islam, is uh, Noam Chomsky. I don't know if you know much about sure. him. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I I jokingly play a game called the Six Degrees of Separation of Noam Chomsky. So I give you a calamity, and in six causal links, you have to link it back to why the U.S. is evil. So, uh, you know, an a, an Amazonian frog died. In six causal links or less, you have to tell me why it is the fault of the U.S. military industrial complex as to why that frog died. Because he views the whole world through very, very, uh, you know, uh, myopic lens, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Hamas is nice. Uh, Israel is a evil apartheid racist state. And you think this is a Jewish guy who's spewing this from his uh, safety of his confines in MIT office. Now, I grew up in that world. I promise you, they're not going to take too kindly to you uh, when the lights are off. And so it's just, it really is amazing to kind of underst- understand the schizophrenic position. Or for example, Queers for Palestine is another one, right?
0: Queers for, for Palestine?
1: Palestine. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's a
0: huge movement. I need a t-shirt. I need yeah. a Queers for Palestine t-shirt. It's fine. I mean, they I mean, have a cafe press. And- which area in the Middle East can you be
1: open and assume your sexual orientation it's in Israel yes yet what's gonna to happen to you in some of those other areas is not going to be very pretty and
0: yet these people are able to completely disassociate from that reality it's like uncle Tom's right right it's kind of along those lines I suppose in a way that, yeah the the idea that for whatever reason the, this one religion is the one that you're not supposed to criticize I don't understand how that happened. No. I wonder if it's connected in some way to the suppression of the people that live in these places where their natural resources are being stolen in the, by the war machine, right. which is undeniable. Undeniable what's going on in Iraq or in Afghanistan, how much of it, how much of the hustle has to do with the natural resources, right. whether it be the poppy fields, whether it be the minerals in Afghanistan, whether it's the oil in Iraq, undeniable that these people are being sure for for sure they're subject to the war machine that's coming in to steal the resources right. and that that that's that's something that people are aware of and you see these images of these people in these islamic countries that are dying that are getting bombed on and and also the dehumanism that they're subjected to by a lot of people that are trying to justify this the, right. these wars that, that is the only thing that makes sense to me. And also the fact that this has happened over the course of – since 2001, this is when this anti uh, – this Islamophobia notion has been right. really, really uh, pushed harder and harder. Well, I think it's also
1: because that's the way that I demonstrate how tolerant and progressive I am by showing mm-hmm. that I am not going to lump everybody with those crazy nine eleven people. Right. And so again, it's part of that progressive posing. Uh, no ideology, no belief system, is is free from mockery, from criticism, and the quicker we find that out, and the quicker we kind of fix this problem, the be- the better
0: we'll be off. Do you think that that's possible? I mean, in, this is the internet, and this is this is where it gets really weird. Is, is the is internet a, is supposedly where the ideas come the f- to be vetted yeah. out? You know, I mean, this is the the age of information. This is where it's all on the table. So you're
1: saying, is it is it is it going to be possible to suppress criticisms of islam for much longer yeah is
0: it going to be possible to keep up this ridiculous facade well
1: i think i think one of the ways that you suppress it is by creating an ethos of self-censorship so uh... it right so uh if i open up my laptop and i can write on my psychology today blog to 3 million people i have a real clear choice to make that day am i going to write something that can bring heat to my young children. And then I have to decide whether I'm willing to do that or not. Now, the fact that I've already engaged in that calculus and that calculation suggests that we are, I mean, the, 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 the canary is singing in the coal mine. And so I think we have to be in an environment where we don't engage in this type of self-censorship. So so I think uh, we're definitely down the wrong road. I think many academics uh, privately Will speak about these issues very openly with me, but will never even as so far as go as to like something on Facebook, lest they will be found That's out. That's
0: so crazy. You okay. gotta worry about your standing, you gotta worry about your public standing, you gotta worry about your job, you gotta worry. That's More people should be self sufficient, you have less to think about in that regard. But when you're an educator, how can you be? In one sense, you have tenure. That kind of yeah. helps a lot. But tenure creates a lot of hubris. There's a lot of guys who have tenure that all of a sudden become untouchable, and they f- force-feed their students their ideologies. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I
1: wrote an article on, uh, on my Psychology Day blog where I was talking about the necessity for tenure, but also its potential for misuse, mm. right? Because you do get an incredible
0: amount of deadwood with tenure, right? Do you f- foresee a time where... Universities won't be the main source of education that will somehow or another to be taken care of online? That's a good question. I mean, right now there's a development of... Have you heard of... You know what
1: MOOCs are? No. MOOCs are... Well, these, I know what Joey
0: Diaz calls MOOCs. What's there's it? fucking MOOC over here. Like, oh. You're a dummy. Okay, like, as a derogatory like term. Oh, you yeah.
1: goofball. are oh, right. You're a MOOC. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, MOOCs are uh, massive online. I can't remember the rest of the... Oh, okay. These are courses that are oftentimes offered under the auspices of a university but they're free courses where people can massively register you have you know uh, teaching a course 100,000 people.
0: MIT does that, right? MIT
1: does that. It's a whole bunch. and actually I tried to to hook up with these guys called Coursera that organizes a portal for this but they they don't have a contract with Concordia and it has to be between a university and the organization for it to fly. Uh, so I do see a potential eventually for sort of a more democratization of knowledge. Mm. Uh, but I don't suspect that we're going to lose the university anytime soon. Well,
0: this is a social aspect of it that's so interesting. You know, people go away and they yeah. party and they have fun. They find themselves. They not in Canada, though.
1: We, no? Yeah, it's very interesting because I've, I've studied both in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, as yeah, part of my studying. And so this Greek system, going away to college, not being close to your parents, uh, uh, the drinking games, that's very much much more so of an American rite of passage than it is a Canadian. Most Canadian students end up going to the school that is physically closest to them.
0: That's interesting.
1: Uh, Is that because it's paid for by the government? That's it. You got got it. So Mm. in Canada, you don't have historically – I mean now some programs are getting a bit more privatized, but historically everything is Big Brother. So there isn't this huge – hierarchy of universities right the harvard and then uh, whatever uh, all schools are public and so yes mcgill university is more famous than some other canadian university but on average all canadian schools are quite good and you have about 40 universities and so there's really no point in choosing between them and going across the country in the us you have 3000 you know colleges and universities there's widely varying in, on everything in terms of price, in terms of quality. And so I think that's what makes it a bit more exciting to choose and pick. But in Canada, they're all good.
0: That's interesting. In, in the United States, they also have universities that cater specifically to religious ideas, too. Exactly. Like, the, what was the one that, that uh, someone got in trouble for during one of the elections for taking support from and that they, they, they wouldn't allow interracial couples? Remember that? Is that Brigham Young? Was it Brigham Young? It might have been Brigham Young. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember which one it was, but it was some southern university. And I forget who they, they were supporting, but it became a big uh, problem with them. Right. That they had, they had become uh, aligned with this university that didn't, didn't allow Incredible. interracial couples. Like, whoa. Like, you know, at what time – you know, the real problem with that, obviously, it's racist, but also the varying scales of race – yeah, okay. like like is it only pure blood? <laughs> you know what are you a fucking vampire, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like what if someone is like one sixteenth Native American? oh, is that you know is he interracial <laughs> if right. he's right. dating a blonde woman from Norway right? You know, what if the woman, you know, is like one eighth Chinese, like wait, one quarter, like when do we draw the line? Right, right. Half? <laughs> and she's half Chinese? Like, what the fuck? What if she lies about it and says she's Eskimo? <laughs> like, <laughs> to, to, to think that if only I converted to Seventh Day Adventist, I could be living in Southern California, man. Dude, you could have been rocking it and oh. teaching bullshit and teaching bullshit and lying about Jesus. It would have been awesome. Maybe I still might accept it. Tanning. Yeah, you've been tanning. You can tan in Montreal too for about three weeks. <laughs>
1: Montreal, you probably know this joke. We have four seasons: winter, 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 and July.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, July is pretty awesome though, and everybody's very festive. Yeah. One of the things that I love about uh, any place like Canada or uh, like a lot of parts of Canada is that they really appreciate yep. the, the summertime because of the fact the well, winters so brutal. We over- That's exactly right. It's the festival sort of
1: city of the world because Mm -hmm. we're completely cocooned from, say, end of November till, say, mid-April and so we make up for it.
0: I think it also develops character too. I've talked about Los Angeles and that a lot of people that are born and raised in Los Angeles are like spoiled rich kids that you know also won the lottery. Right. Like they don't yeah. realize how easy they've got it. Yeah. Like the worst the weather gets here you have to hit a button and turn the AC on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the most brutal thing you have to do is use your finger to press a button. Well, I remember
1: when we lived here when I was at UC Irvine, uh, one time we were driving on the highway and there was a warning weather advisory because there was going to be 10 minutes of rain, and when it rains, the the roads apparently become a bit more slippery uh, mm. because of the oil stay. I don't I don't know exactly what it was, and so I'm thinking, you know, we drive in minus thirty degrees in snowstorms. They have warning advisories when it rains for ten minutes. It's
0: true. You guys have character. We have none. <laughs> We're done. Well, We're done here. Hear. I'll give up my
1: character to move to Southern California. Well, you've lived a bunch of
0: years up there. You realize right. that the winters are not worth it. Yeah. They get they are brutal. Yeah. They, they especially if you have to go anywhere. If you right. could work out of your house all winter long and you had a good supply of wood and water and food ready and for a, you and a
1: bear once in a while to shoot, then yes, you're set.
0: there you go. Then you could stay warm and full. But California, there's pros and cons. The right. the con is obviously that everybody knows about it. So you've been here? You've been here Since 94. Oh, okay. So you've been here yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. It's, uh, but I grew up in, in Boston and also delivered newspapers. So I drove every day, 365 days a year. Wow. So snowstorms, everything. One thing is good. I know how to drive in snow. I know how to drive real good. Right. Like when, when the ass end of my car kicks out, I don't sweat it at all. Right. I just counter steers. It's, it's like instinctive. But, you know... It's more pleasurable to live here. But you don't
1: have the... I mean, could you break out into the Bostonian accent if you wanted to?
0: Yeah. I kind of... You know what? I fought once in the Bay State Games, which was this uh, big uh, Olympic festivals when Taekwondo was going into the Olympics. Okay. And uh, I won it, so I got interviewed on television. I heard myself on TV. I was like, oh my God, I sound like a fucking idiot. It was... My accent was so strong. Yeah, we've been working hard, training hard for this. I was like, oh, I didn't realize. I didn't realize how gross it sounded so i uh, abandoned you worked it. worked hard too okay i just abandoned it i mean it comes out every now and then if i have a couple drinks in me you hear right. a little bit of it right but uh it's a weird accent because i have a little bit of new jersey too right born in new jersey um, man, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before?
1: Just wanted to thank you. I can't believe all the- three hours. three hours.
0: Three hours. It feels like three minutes, I man. I know. You're the best by. interviewer ever. Ah, uh, that's ridiculous. You're the best guest ever. Well, thank you. It was you, pretty easy sweet. to do. Look, we could do this a hundred times, man. Let me know when you're back in town again. We'll do this again for you're sure. You're on. Well, um, your books, what can people buy? Where can they buy it? What What do you suggest? So uh,
1: probably if they want the sort of trade book, the the, the, the book that's written for the masses, The Consuming Instinct. Uh, the consuming stuff. Yeah, what juicy burgers, Ferraris, pornography, and gift giving reveal about human nature? So that they could get on Amazon, and there'll be a listing of my other books there. They could check out my psychology today blog, Homo Consumericus, where I write about everything: religion, politics. When you say science. Homo,
0: you better say something else, real quick.
1: <laughs> you
0: know, you can't what are you, have some a What you kind of Homo Sapien, boy? What are you kind of Homo Consumerist? <laughs> you got to be real careful. So. There okay well listen thank you very much it was thank a really so fun conversation I really really appreciate you coming down here and spreading some knowledge and information it was really fun to talk to you too Cheers. Really, really appreciate it likewise you could follow GAD on Twitter it's uh, GAD Saad did I say it right? yep G A D S A A D on Twitter, and uh, the links there are also to his website. and You can uh, find his books on Amazon. Do you have any on books on tape? Is it on uh, They're not. I no? wish mm, I God need to damn, do that. Son. I know. You need to um, I know. audio tape your books, man. You're so Just right. read your books. I know. And, and with that sexy radio voice, that's I mean. what I'm talking about, dog. Do it. You got it. You got it. Flaunt it. All right, folks. So we got another podcast coming up uh, in a little bit tonight uh, with uh, David Seaman. He'll be here in about uh, 10 minutes. So until then, much love, my friends. Much love. Please uh, support our sponsors. Uh, Blue Apron. Go to uh, blueapron.com forward slash Rogan. That's Blue ape. Is that it? Why, why am I having a hard time finding it here? Where's the, uh, the copy? Oh, there's two copies here. Okay. BlueApron.com forward slash Rogan. That was correct. And you will get two free meals. Uh, Delicious, healthy, nutritious, low in calories. I just started using it and I really enjoy it. I love the fact that I don't have to go to the supermarket when I'm busy. It's all delivered to your house. Give it a shot. And uh, like I said, you'll get two free meals. BlueApron.com forward slash Rogan. We're also brought to you by Ting. Go to Rogan.Ting.com for $25 off of any of their delicious cellular devices. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye. Big kiss from